Yesterday is a memory. Today is history. Tomorrow is in the hands of one man. My name is Dr. Kaufman. Take my word for it, yeah? Welcome to a special episode of Michelle Yeoh and Friends. I'm your villain host, James Page from MI6. Uh, this week, James Bond has been pretty relieved he never had to work with Christopher Nolan because it turns out he's probably an asshole. <laughs> so, well, I bet Christopher Nolan loves that Casino Royale torture sequence. I bet that's his favorite scenes. Well, if you're going to have a chair, at least cut a hole in it. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, so this week, Lisa's Choice, Tomorrow Never Dies, made it over the line. Um, yeah. Many times nominated. Um, so, Lisa, you're on deck this week. So, um, on our panel this week, we have Bill, Ben, Calvin, David, and of course, Lisa. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Hello, everybody. This is Bill Koenig, and I'm with the blog, The Spy Command. Hi everybody, uh, this is Ben Williams, uh, I write for mi6hq.com and mi6confidential and I am joined by my dog, um, who will be barking periodically through through this podcast. Yay. <laughs> I'm Calvin and I run the Calvin Dyson YouTube channel where I review all things Bond and today I'm drinking a vodka and Diet Coke. David Lee here, um, I run thejamesbondossier.com, I have a rum and coke in front of me but my dog has deserted me but I do wear a mask (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Hi everyone I am Dr. Lisa Funnel Uh, I'm an associate professor at the University of Oklahoma I'm the author of The Geographies, Genders and Geopolitics of James Bond with Klaus Dodds I'm the editor of For His Eyes Only, The Women of James Bond. And in honor of Canada Day, which was a couple of days ago, I am drinking a uh, Canada Dry Ginger Ale with some amaretto in it. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, very good. It's going to be a good podcast. All right, so we've got the MGM logo up, everybody. Uh, Tomorrow Never Dies in three, two, one, play. Rawr, 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 Michelle, go, ah, 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 rawr, rawr. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm finally getting my Lady Gaga intro into a Bond film. I'm so happy. Now she's not done a theme song. Might as well do one in her style. <laughs> I've only had like two sips of my drink so far. So this is amazing. By the end of this film, God knows what's going to happen then. <laughs> Every time, every time Lisa says, Michelle, yo, you got to take a drink. Oh, my God. <laughs> I like that challenge. I don't, think I, I don't think I've got enough drink for that. Um, I have to get so an here idea. we are at a, a very remote um, airbase, actually. I think it's in France or Switzerland. I can't remember. Someone will have to correct me on that. But it does actually exist as a very small airport. Um, and Bill and I were just t- talking prior to the recording of this podcast about uh, the original script for this where we had an introduction of bond ice climbing um up a frozen river to get to the arms bazaar 
which I think would have been a nice introduction to Bond. And uh, um, Roger Spottiswood on the commentary track, you know, for the movie uh, mentions it. And I think they concluded it was either too dangerous or maybe they just didn't have enough time because the production was really time pressed. Um, uh, so this is this is where uh, Robinson does Bill's uh, sort of Bond's usual uh, job of just knowing everything. Mm-hmm. Um, he he knows every single person in that in that uh, location. He knows every weapon yeah. that's there. Um, he's he's very quick to be able to identify not just people but uh, armaments. Um, and an early facial recognition system. And he, but he also codes them geopolitically. And so this isn't just sort of an arms bazaar. It's talking about all the key players in the world. And the Brosnan era is showcasing that the world is changing. And I know that we talk more in the Daniel Craig era about things being in the shadow. Are things opaque? Are things, you know, translucent? But here you have a group of people coming together in a remote location worldwide and simply trading, you know, nuclear, are they armaments? Nuclear weapons? And this is something that is concerning. So I, I really like the dialogue and how it pulls together just the broader significance. And just as a sidebar, I love the music of this film. I love that mm-hmm. David Arnold is here. I When I teach uh, about soundtrack, I usually show this this pre-credit sequence just so that my students can see the, the action, but hear how the music codes it. And the music tells us, you know, who the good guy is. It gives uh, the action pace um and it and it just always seems to excite me this 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 beginning soundtrack getting me into the film well and and also arnold wrote a song that was uh, submitted for consideration as a title song it was turned down and they run it in the end titles but he weaves bits of that song in the score we'll hear it or you can hear it in the um uh pre-titles and you know in this sequence and as well as later was that a shot from dino the day i'm confused yeah, <laughs> it is the reuse shot, James. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just, I was just, I've got to throw the dino the nail in, haven't we? I've got to get it over with early. <laughs> uh, so. Um, so, did Bond install all the video cameras at the arms? Yeah, bizarre? that's the plan. That he yeah. kind of, like, he kind of put yeah. them around so that they could, uh, they could see the action that was that was going on. Um, I think that was kind of the extent of his um, his mission. His mission parameters right. was just literally plant the cameras and go, not to uh, not to necessarily come in like a a, a white knight, a literal and, white knight. And of course, Admiral Roebuck was uh, Judy Dench's co-star in a British television show, so that a fine romance, um, which kind of which yeah, for for many many years, and I think uh, that that played well for, for for kind of UK audiences. I don't suppose it ever kind of really had any resonance for anybody outside of the UK, but um, um, they showed it in Indianapolis where I lived at the time. They showed it like late night on a public TV station. And it's like, I saw it after this movie. I thought, what? Admiral Robux in this. What? So, you know, seeing those two together, <laughs> obviously a different relationship than in this film. Uh, the, uh, like I, I was totally unaware of it till I just happened to stumble across it. So the uh, make, Ch- make Chernobyl look like picnic always gets a good laugh in the thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and in, Go Sorry, ahead, go Lisa. Ahead. Oh, I was I was going to pivot back to something else. So, I was just going to say, just historically, uh, this is pre-Putin, and you had mm-hmm. the bumbling Boris Yeltsin as president. So the Russian representative is kind of bumbling in the Boris Yeltsin kind of way, Boris Johnson kind of way. 
And I'm not sure if my comment sort of connects with that. I was just wondering what any of your thoughts were with his code name being White Knight, because we typically think of like this notion of the White Knight being sort of like the hero, you know, kind of riding in. But if we're talking about like a geopolitical world, um, Mm -hmm. if we're talking here about, you know, the UK operating, you know, around in Russia and then Bond going um, uh, to, to China and with sort of the geopolitical surrounding of this with Hong Kong being handed over back from British to Chinese rule, is there even sort of maybe some racial significance to his designation as being the white knight sort of coming in and stepping in? I'm just thinking about it now. I've never really thought of that. that I, name I've thought about it before, Lisa. And I, yeah. I think that it, you know, in with the kind of a hindsight, we can see that. And I think it kind of, you, you can interpret it in that way. I don't believe that it was intentional Mm-hmm. Uh, on the on the part of the the, the filmmakers to to do that, but um, I think it certainly has those connotations attached to it, um, and I don't think it's wrong to read that into it. Well, symbolically, the knight is uh, one of the most powerful pieces on the chessboard as well. Can go in any direction, you know, either two forward, one to the side, or yeah. one forward, two to the side, but can go in almost any direction over a number of moves and so some would argue you know it might be a it might be a reference to that also in chess white white pieces move first mm. Mm. and and white knighting has become a um, a kind of a a term hasn't it really for for people kind of just stepping in um right um Mostly used in a, in a derogatory kind of uh, sense these days. But, it, would have, um, it would have been funny if he was like White Knight calling sacrificial pawn. <laughs> <laughs> Feels a bit like Overkill. Yeah. He already has a code name. It's 007. <laughs> well, there was my my little spiel about how powerful the, the chess piece is. It's taken from a rather popular Western show here in the states, where um, the the character's symbol was a knight piece on his holster. Hmm. And he gives um, that spiel in an episode. So, so I said to, to Bill at the beginning of, of this, this there is a lot of action in, in this pre-title sequence. It reminds me a little bit of the Octopussy pre-title sequence mm-hmm. um, in that it is its own kind of self-contained little film um, full of uh, explosive action. Uh, but for me, one of the things that doesn't kind of happen is that, I, I mean, even though that we've got the missile coming and, and the and the the tension is built up. I never really invest in this. It feels just like a lot of a lot of pyrotechnics, but not a lot of heart. Um, and so, although it is perhaps one of the kind of the more polished and action-packed pre-title sequences of the of the whole franchise, it doesn't really connect to me. Yeah, I, I, I agree because it, it's. Uh, I've always wanted to like it more than I actually do. It always it disappoints me. It just it's lacking something and uh so it's a lot of there's a lot of pain face though there's a lot of pain (laughs) face i was watching this before the we recorded and i just kept thinking pain face um 
Um, I, I quite like this opening. I agree that it doesn't feel like... I, when I see the octopus see pre-tart sequence, it feels like a Bond opening title sequence. There's a very specific stunt involved with the, the mini jet. Uh, here, I, I don't know. If you take out the Bond theme and just replace Brosnan with Bruce Willis or you know whatever else, I, I don't know if it feels that much different. I don't know if he does anything terribly Bondian. Yeah, that's, a, that's what I was just thinking, that there's a lack of Except Bond cool in it. it and it's uh, hmm. um, yeah, it, it's a very generic action piece. Yeah, mm. yeah. I think I think there are there are more successful action pieces that don't have, uh, sort of pre-title sequences that don't have the same amount of action, mm. but are somehow more Bondian because mm. because of it. This, well, this I, feels I, just some of it may be a reflection of the chaotic writing process, and we can get into that more detail later. Where it started with Bruce Fairstein, then a bunch of writers came in, and then they brought Fairstein back. And I, I suspect that part of that, they went to a very stripped-down plot um, because they had to start filming by April of 97. They had to make a Christmas release in 97. Good God. And it was just, it was very chaotic. Lucky and they didn't have coronavirus then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whilst it says star, starring Jonathan Price on the credits, we should mention that um, it was originally going to be Anthony Hopkins. Mm. And then in Judy Dench's one of her autobiographies, she mentions that she was excited to work with him. And then she was talking to him about accepting, you know, after he accepted the role, and she goes, Oh, it'd be great when we get the finished script. What do you mean, the finished script? Bye. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh. So, oh, yeah. He wasn't willing to commit to a project that hadn't got a locked script. Because apparently hmm. when Fairstein came back, I mean, he was like writing like hours before uh, the scenes were being filmed. Hmm. Um, and, and one uh, telltale sign of this, when the movie came out, USA Today had a feature about it. And they were like interviewing Fairstein. And he said, oh, there's this line in the movie about Bond says he never grew up. And Bond should be the, like the most adult person there ever is. It's like, well, it's your name on the script, guy. Uh, right. realize that. But that's just a sign of just how quickly. So here's, here's the sole credited writer like knocking a line in a film that you know, bears <laughs> his name, which obviously he didn't write. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, what do we all think of this song, Cheryl Crow's theme? I'm, I'm a fan. I, I look, Calvin. I I think it's a very, it's a it's a nice song. Uh, Bill brought this up earlier, which was that "Surrender" by Katie Lang is uh, tacked onto the end mm. uh, uh, credits. I personally think "Surrender" is a superior song. Uh, oh, definitely. I I, I I absolutely love that song. Um, mm. I love Katie Lang. Um, I feel mm. like it should have gone. It should have gone over the credits uh, mm. as a kind of a. Here you go. This will do. Kind of. Uh, I mean, look. That's not to. That is not to knock this song. I think this song does does work, and it is a good song. I just think it. It's not as good as the song that goes over the yeah. air. Mm. And so, what? Which is the two? Which is which of these two sins is the worst from MGM? Because they overruled these things. One, picking Cheryl Crow to do the title song over Kay Lang. Two, casting Terry Hatcher over Monica Bellucci. Well, <laughs> and, and maybe and maybe a third which was this surfaced recently. It was either a James Bond music page on Facebook or a John Barry page on Facebook. And somebody like posted all these quotes from John Barry's agent. And the agent yes, said right. that he tried 
at the last minute, he was so desperate to get, you know, wanted to, because, you know, John it came Mary down to his fee, right? Yeah. And then, you know, the agents, you know, like, I'll, I'll forego my commission, but just don't tell John. And then, and he, and the agent said it was MGM that came back, said, what are you trying to do? And blah, 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 blah. And it just, the thing crashed and burned. Hmm. So it's, you know, and then because John Burlingame then responded and said, well, the guy told me that too, but said I couldn't use it. What's your source on this? And so I uh, took it guy? as to mean that was largely <laughs> true. Um, yeah. Yeah. MGM said, came back and said something like, it, it looks like you're trying to bribe us or something. Yeah. yeah so that's shit back. <laughs> yeah. This ship commander looks more, more like Bond than, you know, the Fleming's Bond than kind right. of um, Pierce does, really. I think he's got a kind of a Fleming Bond quality to him. Um, which I quite like. Um, and obviously we're about to see... Gerard um, Butler. Gerard <laughs> Butler, um, who, would, who would be touted for Bond several times, um, uh, but obviously never never made it. Mm. These ships are full of, like, sort of just faces that you just know from British TV and stuff. Like, later on as well, uh, at the end of the film, there's going to be a bunch of people who's like, oh, they were both in The Crown uh, not that long ago, and oh, he was in Downton Abbey and all these things. The way this this thing on the ship is filmed as well, it kind of just reminds me very much of kind of like the early Bond films, uh, mm. particularly Spy Who Loved Me. Um, you know, you wouldn't be surprised if you saw the shaking coffee cups and the and the, and the guys <laughs> playing chess. Mm. It's got that. It's got a very similar kind of look and feel to it. And not only that, like we've not got to them um, just yet, but soon we're going to come up to Julian Fellows as the Minister of Defence, and the fact that we had Sorry. Admiral Roebuck and a Russian general—it has that feeling of like you know when Roger Moore would come in in some of his, and it's like, well, Minister of Defence is here, General Gogol is you know phoning in or whatever. Mm-hmm. It has that sort of ensemble that I don't think we've had since really. That's right. No, we're uh, we're seeing the henchman now, and um, he's in communication with Carver. And so in the novelization, it stated that uh, he, he would feel pleasure when anyone else would feel pain. He was like, mm-hmm. he's wired opposite. But this is not used in the final film. But again, when you do a novelization, you're not using the final script. And basically with this movie, there was no final script. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. constantly being written. Um, so that idea was kind of recycled, sort of, in The, the World is Not Enough with Renard. But... Uh, I was going to say, what do we think about early, early appearances of the main villain? Because here at 15 uh, minutes and Carver's already been on the screen. Hmm. Yeah, kind of in a, in a, in a bleak kind of way. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't like Jonathan Price in this film. It's, I like Jonathan Price as an actor, kind of, you know, he's, he's, he's good and fine. Uh, I think he's just... Uh, he he's somebody's obviously told him that you know play it play it big Jonathan play it hammy, um, and I don't I don't really particularly like it. Um, <laughs> play play just, it hammy, it's a sight. It's like it's, it's like a, a whole Thanksgiving. Hog. It's a Thanksgiving ham, isn't it? <laughs> but I actually I like him. I like the way that he I like the way that he plays the villain, and I and I do like the plot line here because I think it has a lot of relevance even today. This idea that the goal is to control the news, and I think he does overplay it. But at the same time, I buy into sort of the greed, the desire, the passion to um, definitely have that type of power and 
control. Whereas there have been other villains in the past who have been focused, but I'm just like, but are you really emotionally invested? Because I think they play mm-hmm. it a little bit too stoic. So I kind of like mm-hmm. seeing somebody who's a little bit more exuberant and who has a lot of passion for what he's doing. And I feel as though it, it might not be typical of, of, of the actor's style, but I really do buy into his performance of, of it. And maybe it has to do with the fact that I wasn't familiar with Jonathan Price before um, watching a Bond film. So maybe there's just like a bit of a discord there, but I've never really had an issue. I kind of like when he goes over the top. Well, the, yeah, as, I, at, the t- at the time the movie came out, there was speculation, okay, who are they basing this on? Is it based on Rupert Murdoch? Is mm-hmm. it based on Ted Turner? But one he may have actually been based on was Robert Maxwell, yeah. who died mm-hmm. under mysterious circumstances. Mm-hmm. There's a reference people. to that later on in the film, isn't there, about yeah. Yeah. comment? Yeah, about his yacht. Died yeah, sea. yeah I, I, I think the storyline, yes. I think the appearance was definitely more um, Rupert Murdoch. I think... Um, I think- just a quick word on the wireframe uh, images of, of the of the sea drill hitting the Devonshire. Um, it, I think that's kind of a bit lazy. It's kind of like we couldn't we couldn't figure out how to film the the missile right. hitting it and working because we just done it on a wireframe, which I think is kind of like um, yeah, unfortunate, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that doesn't really have much relevance to anything now because it's past, but I just thought I'd bring it up. <laughs> um, mm. it's such a shame that um gerard butler drowns in in this you know because he could have gone on to be one of the codenamed bonds later <laughs> on <laughs> oh i love this yeah just uh I, lo- I love carver as well i'm with lisa on this i just love the camp i love this the music when he types murdered into his yeah. thing the wow. eye delicious right. i love it I- Along with, uh, and I think David, you may agree, agree with me on this one. But the thing that drives me batty about this is, if you know how computers work, he types the M for murdered, and it knows where to center the word, even though you haven't typed the word. Uh, it just drives me insane. <laughs> but it, it's a, it was ninety-seven. No one knew these things. Typing, predictive typing, way ahead of it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> for me, I think the, the thing, thing that I love about him typing, and and I think it's his superpower. He can type with one hand so quickly, like that's mm-hmm. like way ahead of its time with the way that we type today on our on our smartphones, right? Like he's just able to go with one hand. I think that that as somebody who has to write books and stuff, that's an amazing skill. Like I'd like to learn that so I can be eating and drinking with one hand, and I can be yeah. typing with the other. I I, I, yeah. I just I find Lee, it mesmerizing. He, he goes Lee. to the same vill- he goes to the same villain school that taught Drax how to play the piano. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, wouldn't we call um, his computer a tablet now? Yeah, that's true. So, that is true. Lisa, Lisa, this has this has no relevance to to, to much anything that's happening in the film. But uh, I I once sort of uh, we were what uh, my my partner and I were watching uh, Sherlock, and you know how he can type on his um, phone without looking at it. Yeah. And I said that's just an impossible thing to be able to do. People can't do that. And um, she put her hand behind her back and texted me. <laughs> <gasps> That's fantastic. Skillful. That. Yeah. Uh, so um, pe- some people do have this ability. <laughs> Yeah, but that's that's a lot, that's a lot of time driving in LA though, man. Meanwhile, did Carver <laughs> did, did Carver like get his outfit from a Blofeld estate sale? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why do why do Bond villains always dress this way? I mean, like. 
uh, you know, uh, you didn't have that until you only lived twice. Before that, even Blofeld wore a suit, but no. He's, he's wearing a polo neck underneath his mm. jacket. He is. It's a very odd combination. Oh, and, and here we have the worst, in my opinion, Michael G. Wilson cameo. Can you, can you do it? Primarily Bruce because Bill, he's got just, too many can, lines. Can you just, can you just, well, can you voice over it? Uh, <laughs> gonna, that would be so perfect if you just did. Considering the slime, sir. <laughs> um, I have a question about Stamper. Um, his eyes, was that a makeup thing or does the actor just naturally have. Uh... It's in the novelization. He has one, he has different colored eyes. Oh, okay. Uh, huh. I think it's an, uh, I think it, I think it alludes to his neuro, uh, neurological condition with the whole pain oh. pleasure thing. It's called hmm. heterochromia iridium. Um, right. uh, ben, ever the expert. <laughs> <laughs> it's like James Bond here, where he's like, actually, I do know. And I'm like, how do you know this? <laughs> I, I just know little boring pieces of information. Uh, oddly, though, I might know that, but I've never noticed that Stamper has it. <laughs> <laughs> I only noticed it very recently, actually. I was rewatching this a few uh, weeks ago and uh, noticed it then. 24 yeah, I, I hours a day, I, I love this speech. Oh, can this I was, just point the, out? Didn't, Bill, didn't Fierstein write this speech as his pitch for the movie? <laughs> yes. It, it was definitely media moguls was definitely his pitch. Can, mm. I, can I just interject and I just say that this little speech, he says, I want newspapers, I want radio, I want TV. Books. <laughs> Books, magazines. Books, but yeah. he does Books. not say the internet. Right. Yeah, but books about current events. I mean, well, I want books. It's but, like, but, 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 you know, the internet, the internet became widely shown. about yes, 95. But, yeah, but we this was, this was in, the, yeah, this was the first Bond film. This is the first Bond film that they released the teaser trailer on the internet. Hmm. And it was a quick time movie the size of a thumbnail. Um, yeah. with like three frames a second and it took an hour to download it. <laughs> it did take an hour to download. Um, but whilst it wasn't kind of like a massive thing, it certainly, you know, it, it, we'd already seen the internet being used as a plot device in GoldenEye, but so why would you not include it, you know, in this media mogul who has control no. over every medium apart from That's the internet? That's true. The first major newspaper we- uh, websites went up around 95. So, yeah, and this is two years into it. So, yeah. It seems. Taken. It just seemed to me like a, a big kind of a, uh, a glaring omission. That's why he lost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He'd certainly have gone under if he hadn't been a villain. He would not have, uh... yeah, right. Many Benny's nails are quite good here. He's got some really long nails going on. <laughs> So I know that we talk about Pierce Brosnan's pain face, but he also, this is an observation, he also likes to bite his partners in bed. He does like a little, like a lot of nibbling on their shoulders. He does it, I think, mm. to Paris. He does it to this woman. I'm just throwing that one out maybe, there. Maybe that the, maybe the maybe the craft services were lacking on this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's an interesting development. I think he got the idea from Xenia in GoldenEye. <laughs> we are in, in Somerset House. So Somerset House was previously used uh, as the square in Russia, and here we are at the, uh, seeing it as um, the, and, the Minister of Defence. And of we Defense. would see it some years later again. I was just going to mm. say, Judy Dench made a joke about don't ask, don't tell. That was actually the nickname of President Bill Clinton's policy for the armed forces, where under the rules at that time, you couldn't be gay and be in the armed forces. 
And so his policy was dubbed, don't ask, don't tell. So that's a topical joke of the time that got inserted into this movie. Which was a little bit, you know, you wouldn't, they wouldn't do that now, would they? No. Oh, I don't know what they wouldn't do right now. I think um, they just ignore <laughs> it and just, <laughs> just take uh, that line out. Yeah, I'd forgotten Julian Fellows was in this, uh, Calvin. Um, he, of, uh, he of Downton Abbey fame and, and the like. It does seem sort of... Uh, an odd bit. I like his, I like his delivery of Christ. Christ. <laughs> yeah. uh, may I just turn up and be misogynistic and white? But I mean, Sorry. this is this this whole setup is the you know the a view to a kill. You can't possibly go after him. He's a well-connected French industrialist. I mean, it's the same. Don't get uh, caught he, looking into somebody who's important. Yeah. Spiel. It's like uh, say Prince Andrew. Um. (laughs) (laughs) and we went there (laughs) well which actually has a connection to robert maxwell the example his daughter got arrested this week (laughs) so like so suddenly this week oh yeah robert maxwell's name is back in the (laughs) yeah so i have a question for you and it deals here with judy dunch so in the last film she's somebody who came in and said you know you're a sexist misogynistic dinosaur a relic of the cold war and across the brazen era we typically think of her as being somebody who sort of um critiques gender politics is pushing uh for women and equality and so forth and yet we have this scene where she encourages bond to sleep with paris carver pump her for information um emphasize the importance of 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 sex in spy work and you know some people have argued that that's a little bit regressive that it sort of goes against the other messages that she's sending so i'm just wondering your thoughts like it's funny the way that she delivers the line but how do you feel about it's, the sentiment it's definitely inconsistent with her performance in golden eye it's almost like it was written by somebody else hmm. i'm sure <laughs> somebody else the question is which of the half dozen people who had a hand in this wrote it and my i wonder how many drinks uh em is having on the drive to Heathrow. <laughs> but um it's weird that she would play it the way she does. I mean, I guess, you know, maybe she was just being directed that way and didn't, you know, kick up a fuss. Maybe she did a different take or something. I don't know. It feels weird that she would play it this way after presumably sort of deciding what the character was like in the last film. Um, yeah, that little and, sort of twinkle in her eye, that smirk. It's, yeah. And, and interestingly, um, Lisa, Bond is, or I should say Brosnan is playing that scene rather than like if you if, if you can imagine um, Roger Moore doing that scene, he would be smirking along with her. Mm-hmm. But he yeah. kind of looks at her like, mm, well, I'm being very stoic. And, yeah, what yeah. on earth are you insinuating? <laughs> yeah, we we just saw the tail of a plane, um, indistinguishable. I think it was deliberate, wasn't it? That mm-hmm. they didn't have an airline partner for this film. Yeah. Sorry for the tangent. No, but we are, no, we are defunct. We, we've been we've been spotting defunct airlines on this on these mm. watchlists, <laughs> which may get easier. I was, okay, oh, so God. now we're seeing Desmond for the first time, and actually, I think his performance here is better than it was in Goldeneye. Some people kind of the, wonder. Uh, there's a lot of fans can... that have big issues with this scene. I don't understand it, but really, why? Yeah, because apparently he's out of character, out of place. Blah blah blah. 
Well, I think it's I think it's in character with how he was with Connery. Maybe I think it it does change the dynamic. Like in the last film, he was sort of eccentric, mad uncle, very um, impressed with all his gadgets. Here, he's back to sort of how he was with Connery and Thunderball and You Live Twice, being very um, sort mm. of yeah grumpy and puritanical about his gadgets. Right. You don't have the proper respect for my work. Yeah. Um, yeah. And here we have but a car. You can see which... in the background the Jaguar in the cage yeah. <laughs> uh, from the, from the cutscene. Yeah. Uh, and where they go, oh, sorry, wrong cage. Yeah. Oh, I, no, mentioned anyway. this... I so I, wish that they had I, a BMW for no time to die and I had the opportunity to drive one of those because it's hmm. such an um, interesting car. I mentioned this. And is, is that, is that gonna, no, you, you, you only get that if you you only get that car if you beat your Q three sales quota. <laughs> I mentioned this in a previous episode when Fairstein wrote funny. that first draft script. He said Bond's car, and he just doesn't even you know. And in parentheses, from whatever supplier we get it from, you know, <laughs> words yeah. of that effect. It's like he, you know, it's what, like I'm not going to pick it. Yeah, but the gag about. Um, the gag about Q being an Avis rep wouldn't work if it was like an Aston Martin, would it? No, no. no. Uh, it's just it, it is just such an like for, for a car that's got as many gadgets or better gadgets than say the DB5. Um, it's just such a, a boring executive car, isn't it? And Absolutely. When you, yeah. when you see, yeah, but isn't that what Brosnan, a banker would have though? Yeah. yeah, it is. It's it's perfect for his cover, I guess. Yeah, but yeah, that's... but but since when has Bond been realistic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, so it's just I think, um, and also I, I mentioned this in a previous podcast where we were talking about how they borrowed certain things from the continuation novels. Um, the the Silver Beast um, was was mm-hmm. Gardner's novels was always very much. Described as uh, uh, in with the same kind of armaments that uh, was that a groan, Calvin? I heard in the background. <laughs> that was yes. <laughs> Sorry, I, I hate I hate how uh, yeah Bond reveres that car in those books. Oh, the Saab. Me, me too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he refers to it as the Saab and the Silver Beast, and it's like you would just say the car. Like yeah. that really bothers me. Can I add one point before they move into sort of the the media element that deals with the car? I find it very interesting. I know that Q said, you know, I gave it sort of a woman's voice because I figured that you would listen to a woman. But that really goes into the feminization of car culture in the world of Bond and Mm -hmm. the way that we feminize cars in a general sense. And we see Bond in the past. He flirts with women via cars. So he becomes attracted to a woman or patience, Bond, patience, if a woman drives quickly uh, past and beside him. So I think it's just as an interesting um, element of continuity when it comes to Bond, women, wooing. Um, and so without him maybe driving beside a woman in a car, he uses a motorcycle in this one. Um, I think that it's a, it's, it's a way to sort of give a nod to this typical tradition. Hmm. Seeing that shot of Pierce Brosnan reminded me of a Heineken promotion for this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Which, can I just make a point? Sorry, uh, just quickly about Michelle Yeoh. 
Okay, I love Michelle Yeoh. I think that she is an amazing badass. She's the reason why I wrote my book, Warrior Women, because I watched her in this film and thought that she was amazing. However, she only really is present for half of the film, the latter half of the film. She appears peppered throughout the beginning. And, you know, my students have asked me, and I don't really have a full reason to give them why she's not featured. But at the end of the day, no matter how excited I am about Michelle Yeoh, this is still a James Bond film. And I feel as though she is a superior agent better gadgets. She tends to be at the places before Bond. She clearly can take care of herself. I've got issues about the ending and how she's her character's treated. And I feel as though if she was there for more of the film, it really would have become a Michelle Yeoh Bond film. Um, sort of what Diana Rigg did when we had our, um, our, mm-hmm. our podcast about Honor Majesty's Secret Service. It's kind of like Diana Rigg's Bond film. And I think that mm-hmm. there w- there is a risk of her overshadowing Bond. Similarly, you know, Tracy disappears for a chunk of Majesties, like uh-huh. yep. like Waylon disappears for a chunk of this movie. But you know what's better than Waylon in this thing? Waylon plus lasers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> James, I think you might have pointed this out about this film before, actually, about like how we're we're half an hour in now and we've met all of the main players. Everybody, yeah, yeah, everybody. Mm-hmm. yeah. which is quite unusual for a Bond film. Yeah, there's no um, second or third act reveal character at all. Um, I'm glad. I'm glad that they got Terry Hatcher for for this role uh, because. Hang on. Uh, and, I can, I, I'm not hearing the level of sarcasm as usual. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm trying to engage. I'm. I was going to say, as opposed to getting um, Monica Bellucci, Mon- so that so that they could use Monica Bellucci to her fullest effect later on. Fantastic <laughs> <laughs> enough for you, James. Yeah, there you go. So Monica Bellucci actually did a screen a screen test for this, and she wasn't that well known in Western cinemas in back in '97. And um, MGM, who had and still do have casting veto power, um, switched it out to FHM's Hottest Woman of the World winner, which is kind of what they were doing um, through the '90s. Right, whereupon Terry Hatcher had been in a. Um TV show, The New Adventures of Lois and Clark, or Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, whatever, Um, which I don't know if if that show was over at the time of this film, but, you know, it was near the end of its run, but she was known to American audiences. She was known to to British audiences as well. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it's just because I watched all of Desperate Housewives from start to Mm. finish, and I really liked her in that. I don't know. I, I... I like her. I don't really um, know why she gets so much stick. I guess she's perhaps a little bit uncomfortable looking through much of it. And I understand that she didn't really particularly enjoy working on this film. And mm. she was the executive choice. But She was she was also pregnant uh, yeah. during mm. the production of this film. Obviously early stages, but uh, yes, she was pregnant. Apparently mm. it was um, her husband that convinced her to do it. Yeah. yeah. And she probably didn't like uh, Brazen biting on her shoulder as a little mm-hmm. later. It's the biting, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Ask the Desperate Housewives cast what it's like to work with her. I think yeah. there's some similar, similar stories to people in this film. Yeah. Hmm. Framing is the framing is very interesting in this. Uh, you know, we've got a low angle shot, slightly low angle shot on Carver and. Mm. Um, you, you know, a, a, a kind of a straight mid shot on um, on Brosnan, you know, um, and, and how the how the what characters are in focus and who aren't. Um, you know, it's a nice kind of like it's setting up it's setting up the power play uh, early on. Um, and I do actually like the way that 
um, Carver's like, I have a problem with a banker. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's actually kind of nicely handled. It's like, just kill this guy for me, would you? That would be really nice. And then it just rolls <laughs> off. Um, We're going to send our oldest security guards after him. <laughs> <laughs> I like their double-breasted uh, jackets as well. It, uh, mm. <laughs> just odd choice for uh, security guards. I don't know. Mm. Real quick, there was a... Um, I was reminded of this because of an earlier shot of Brosnan. Heineken had a uh, commercial in the States, probably elsewhere. Real life James Bonds. James Bond, bowling alley manager. My name is Bond. James Bond. And you have the series of the stuff. James Bond musician. James Bond this. And then finally, you know, Brosnan saying Bond, James Bond. So, um, mm-hmm. and here's the... Oh, uh, I, me- I meant to say that when we were watching, um, you know, the Gibraltar attack uh, in... Um, whatever the film is with uh, License to Kill. Um, Living and, Daylights. Uh, Living Daylights, thank you. I always get those two mixed up. Um, but I meant to say at the time that there was an actual James Bond amongst the military personnel. That's that right, there was. Yeah. yeah. So um, my first real-world interaction with Bond was the company, the first company I went to work for, um, we developed the video processor that powered this video wall for this set. Oh. Um, and... <laughs> Believe it or not, back in the day, this was a thing <laughs> that nobody else could that nobody else could do. <laughs> that set gets a lot of use as well because it's uh, the it was bloody expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say video walls were big at auto shows, probably mm-hmm. around the same time, maybe a year or two later, but. But as we will see, the uh, controls for them are kept in the uh, the sound booths uh, in very small control panels. <laughs> But I like the use of the sound booth and that you can like see the action take place but not hear it. I've always mm. found that to be quite laughable just because we just expect to be able to hear, you know, um, all the punches and stuff being being laid. But yeah, it, there always seems to be in Bond films technology that's of vital importance just kind of laying around in random spots yeah. that's, you know, <laughs> not being, you know, protected. In reality, it was a Windows 95 computer hooked up to a rack of equipment, which wouldn't have looked as good. (laughs) (laughs) I played the uh, the PlayStation 1 game of this recently, and in that game they do have this gigantic sort of like Star Wars-esque sort of uh, control panel thing that you have to flick a switch on. And um, in the game, Paris Carver actually survives. Like, you have a boss fight with... Kaufman and then you go up to the room and obviously I'm thinking like well we're going to find her dead now and then Bond goes up and he's like are you alright and she's like yes and then oh okay Fine. and then you Fine. rescue her and that's it <laughs> yeah that's kind of uh, it's kind of interesting and what what's the excuse there that, that they're not together for the rest of the, the game is it just like <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to <laughs> um I always find that Brosnan's kind of, um, you know, pain acting, it's not just his face, but, you know, whenever he gets a hit, he's like, oh, that's his kind of... <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, a comma of hair. Oh. <laughs> he just thank had to get beaten up out. for five minutes, but there it is. Thank you for, yeah, thank you for pointing that out, Bill, because I, I did, you know, it's not quite the comma that I'm hoping for, but it's it's... It's as close as we get, and so I. Yeah. More I, a, I it's more of a semicolon. <laughs> <laughs> but this 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 is an example well, of an American. Uh, an, uh, sorry, but this is an example of an American writer doing uh, a British Bond character where like, no person in Britain would say station break. 
Mm, no. Yeah. Hmm. No, exactly. Ever. Um, mm. I think everyone just went, what? Well, everyone in the UK just did that. <laughs> in the UK, you would say, it's time to put the kettle on and <laughs> say, you flick the switch. <laughs> that's what you do in a break. That's right. The national grid surges during Coronation Street. <laughs> but you raise a really good point about, you know, when you are writing a script or when you're creating, um, you know, a concept for a worldwide audience. Because if you were to say, like, let's put the kettle on, I'd be like, wait, what kettle? What does that mean? Right. Because it is so, <laughs> it's very, like, like nationally or regionally specific. And so it, it does raise questions when we critique the script and some of these elements, you know, who are they actually playing for? And understanding that, you know, this is a global franchise, mm. so you technically have to play a little bit more broadly out mm-hmm. this was filmed Can at stoke just, pogues wasn't it i was just yeah, about to say this was this this is shot fucking hell james <laughs> this <laughs> is shot at stoke pogues isn't it um so it, well, but i wanted just wanted to say that it's it's one of brosnan's finest kind of like just as a still image of him mm, as bond yeah it's so good you know I what it reminds me of ben? it reminds me of the cut scene of dalton in license to kill where he's sitting watching the tv with his bottle mm. open cleaning his gun yeah, I, mm. I've, yeah. I've, I've, talk, I've talked about these kind of moments uh, before that um, it, it really takes you back to the books where where Bond is reflecting because he does very little reflecting in the films at all. And uh, But sometimes you get these moments in the films and it's, it's like, yeah, I, I wish they had more of these moments. It's also just the fact that they've, they've styled that so well. He just mm-hmm. looks... Mm-hmm. As Bondian as I think he's ever looked in that, I think it, you know, it's like if there's one image for me from from Brosnan's era, it's him sitting in Stoke Poges, um, looking looking like that. Um, mm. I think he looks looks fantastic in it. Getting it, drunk, waiting for an assassin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, but he also looks really also- good dressed down. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. thing. You know, we typically expect him to be all sort of put together, and it's that notion of like he's sort of coming a little bit apart, and yet he still looks, you know, incredibly handsome. And I love the shot glass that is like so thick at the bottom. I don't know. Mm. That's always been like an element where I like look at that glass and I'm like, I want that shot glass. I had, but I, I had those shot glasses. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A, a quick aside. When uh, Spottiswood did his commentary track, he talked about this scene specifically, and he said, like early in his career, no, you have to do as much location shooting as possible; it must be authentic. And then as he got older, well, you know, you shoot in a studio, you can control things better. And he was <laughs> talking, and also specifically <clears throat> in the context of this movie, how it was kind of nice to spend a day shooting dialogue scenes like this, as opposed to. Um, some big action scene where you might get 10 seconds of usable footage uh, you know, you know, after spending a whole day. Um, mm-hmm. So like he, he specifically this, enjoyed filming this scene. It's not even a, a bedroom, is it, in Stoke Poges? It's like a, no. like, a, uh, like a boardroom or something like that. You actually see it in Layer Cake. The, through those two doors, I think, is where the That's final right. shot pushes through and you see... Oh, wow, uh, yeah. Huh. Um, so... So it is interesting that they've kind of like I, I, I always love what what set dressers can do to a, to a location to kind of change it and turn it into something. In fact, earlier we saw on the Devonshire, um, you know, the water coming in through. We'll we'll see that later on redressed as part of the stealth boat. Um, so it's kind of interesting what they can do with with sets to kind of expand and 
Well, and also that big room where they were like monitoring the arms bazaar earlier. I mean, that's a big room that got redressed to be something else in the movie. And again, Mm -hmm. going back to Spottis Woods uh, commentary track said, even though this had a, you know, ample budget, you still have to, you know, if you can make sets double for each other, you know, that's, you, you have to do that. And, you know, it's only idiots like us that are really looking for this stuff. <laughs> yeah. There you go, biting her again. Um, yeah. The real snark. Um, opening night, when her dress drops, got a huge cheer from the male contingent of the audience. <laughs> it's quite a weird move from him. It's, uh, I. Is it romantic? I don't know, because obviously they're trying to sell us here. The music, everything is trying to sell us on like, oh, this lady actually really means something to him. Um, and I, is it intimate? I don't know. Um, it's there's, there's a lot of um, supposed history between them. I think that they're that he's aggressive. I think. I told you, fighting very... all the time. <laughs> It's like Cookie Monster with these bongos. <laughs> it feels very great. I would say this: that generally speaking, in 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 this film, Brosnan is playing Bond pretty stoically, almost like he's got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder about something. Mm. Um, I don't know, I, and I think that I keep coming back to this as as, as to why that this film isn't as. Uh, you know, powerful for me is say some of the other films. And I think, and this isn't to kind of like not Rosner really. I think it's just a choice that he made in his, in his performance, but um, he's playing it in a very particular way that I don't think really a hundred percent sits for me and the rest of the tone of the film. I think he's playing mm-hmm. this film like it's a different, like it's a more serious kind of drama. And I think everybody else in this film is playing it a little bit hammy. <laughs> yeah, here's, little. Here's, yeah, we're just seeing an example here of um, fixing a film in the edit suite where Carver discovers, um, Elliot Carver discovers, you know, her his wife's ex relationship with Bond on the through Gupta, whereas in the original filming, he sends her to go after him. Mm. And they cut that bit out and then added that bit in. Mm. So she, <clears throat> she was deceiving him um, versus, you know, him getting her to deceive him. So I think that the finished film is better for it. I agree. I think that's a, that's a better idea. Um, and then it would also make sense for, for his, um, his reaction to it. Right. Cause otherwise it's, yeah, go sleep with him find out what you can. And then I'll I'm gonna kill, kill you afterwards. Yeah. Well, he kind of does send her off, doesn't he? That's how I always interpreted it when he's like... It was it was like blatant on the nose, like, go to him. You know, oh, okay. Kind of yeah. Oh, because I've always just, yeah, taken it as... when Because when, when he says that barely thing, it's like, oh, oh but you know then. Um, but there's also the line that Bond says, which is like, I wonder who Carver would send. And, mm, yeah. you know, which which makes it kind of more kind of implicit, but... Um, and for the kids at home watching this, this is newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a toilet roll factory. It's all all now done, uh, in a rented office, um, in a, in a, in a, in a small building somewhere. Um, I, I like, I like this, uh, sequence because, um, and I'm sure that, um, 
you know, Lisa will, will uh, chime in on this with me. Um, it, it shows the two different styles between Bond and Michelle. Yo's kind of uh, both wanting the same thing, uh, both on essentially the same mission, um, but they're, they're different ways of tackling it. Um, and uh, I, I, I quite like the way that that, um, that plays I think, to, to I think her strengths. It, I think it's more uh, explicit in their way of escaping. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. He's a blunt instrument where she's all about stealth. But, mm. but, and I need to throw this out there. My one critique, my one critique <laughs> is the fact that Michelle Yeoh is wearing heels as she's scaling the building. And it's something that, you know, I always talk about when I talk about women in action, usually their clothes are anticipating them being part of action. If you watch any other Michelle Yeoh movie where she's doing action, she usually has flat shoes, running shoes, something along those lines because it anticipates her doing some pretty amazing stunts. And Michelle Yeoh does martial arts in her own film. She does a lot of her own stunt work. So to see her just sort of scaling in the the stiletto heels and the leather yeah. uh, jumpsuit, which becomes sort of a Hollywood thing, right? It, it makes its way into Hollywood. I always seem to have a problem with that because put me in heels and I look like a baby deer that has just been birthed trying to walk. <laughs> like they're hard to <laughs> – I am not a graceful swan. And so just seeing that, it's just like it's it's impractical and I actually don't buy into that. Um, in like just, uh, uh, Dallas Bryce Howard wearing uh, high heels in Jurassic oh, World gosh. or whatever that right. movie Take was. Take off like, the I, shoes. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I watched and I kept wondering, okay, when's she going to change her shoes? It's mm-hmm. like I got taken out of the movie because of that. Yep. Um, real I, quick about I don't, this I don't, scene. I don't want to run past this scene. I think this is one of the best scenes yeah. in the movie. Uh, I agree. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's, 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 I'm not actually, actually spying. Yeah. It's abstract uh, you, as well. It's non-linear. You don't get to yeah. see him do things in order. The David Arnold soundtrack builds up to the discovery. It's great. Actually, I was going to say something. You know, you said it better than me. Um, yeah, because he he does doesn't just get it right away. He actually has to figure it out. And mm-hmm. He has to spend some time um, searching the place and thinking proper, about what he's doing. Spy. It's so it's it's first of all it's proper spycraft. You know, he's actually spying. Secondly, um, he's he's being inventive and thinking outside of the box with the gadgets that he's been given, which he does throughout this movie. Mm. Um, and I think it's, you know, it really plays into, uh, you know, just how good a, good an agent he, he really is. And I would compare that uh, to Honor Majesty's Secret Service where we critique that scene where Bond sits back, it's a machine doing it, and he has sort of like the playboy in his hands. And we talked about how sort of <laughs> icky it is that he takes a page with him. Here, he's doing the spy work. He's cracking the safe, wow. and he leaves the pornography in the safe. And so mm-hmm. for me, I'm just sort of comparing and contrasting those in my mind that I assume that this is more the style of what Bond would do. He would be more focused on the mission and moving Agreed. forward rather than – you know, sitting back, allowing technology to do the work for him. And then of course, focusing in on, 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 you know, soft porn. Mm. We, we brushed over also the fact that they've got a several million dollar uh, satellite, not in yeah. a clean room, but right. just in. <laughs> right. Just um, hanging out, uh, made out of polystyrene. As well. Yeah. It looks yeah. so cheap. Um, I think it's 350 million. I think they said. 350 million. Dollars. And it's, and it, 
just it's sitting outside his office like it would be absolutely yeah it would absolutely how would they even get it out why is it even (laughs) (laughs) and ricky j even says like you break it you bought it uh but it it wouldn't be in the print works it would be in some it would be in moonraker's kind of clean environment (laughs) in a laboratory in the nevada deserts yeah yeah exactly like in derek one of derek medding's model shots um, he does, uh, you, you know, the, the fights he's having with these guys are almost like, you know, normally when he fights goons, it's just kind of like, I've got them, they're done. Um, hmm. but he's really hmm. he genuinely, I mean, he struggles with this guy. <laughs> Our friend Lee, uh, Lee, what's his name? Ah, oh, we've interviewed him so many times. I can't remember now. Like you get a, he lands a good couple of shots in on Brosnan. That that Lee, that guy there that just fell off and into the newspaper is the same guy that did Tom Cruise's jump through the aquarium Mission Impossible stunt. Oh, oh there you go. I did not know that. And he looks good, doesn't he? What's red and white and what is it? What is yeah, it? what's black, white, and red all and over? That's always what I think this is. <laughs> <laughs> That's a better line. <laughs> I love the Bond theme here. It's so nice. This little guitar twang. Can you imagine if he's like punching him? He goes, what's punch? Black and white punch and red all over punch. And he goes, <laughs> you. you. I love that. <laughs> I think we just improved the movie. <laughs> Strange use of the Bond theme here to punctuate this particular stunt of all I of know, them. No, it's very odd. Yeah. The warehouse luge. To be fair, that? when I was eight, I did enjoy that store didn't, stuff too. But didn't he do that in Goldeneye? Didn't he do like a jump dive laying yes. on something that moved? Yeah. Duck, so dive, yeah. duck and roll. <laughs> it's, a, it's the, <laughs> what is it? The, the dodgeball. Uh, <laughs> 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 anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, also, one of the things about his suit that I find incredible is that uh, it, it remarkably, you can put like this, this rather large kind of GPS decoder into his pocket and it just kind of doesn't change the line of his suit. It's all mm, just got, like, like the P99. Yeah. He's got, <laughs> he's got a gun, he's got a mobile phone. He's got like anyone who's put a suit on and then gone, I, I just need to put my Oyster card in my back pocket. Realize <laughs> you know, the whole line just changed immediately. Uh, the right. stamp stamp has been proactive just standing on rooftops yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and bond doesn't park between the lines damn it no it's so annoying such a karen such a he's parking it like i thought i love this safe though i love and i guess we sort of see that in but that's uh, the silver beast yeah that's the silver beast. All but that who stuff. parks like that? Like that, that does, it always <laughs> bothers me. You need two, you need two spots. Your car's that like special. He's in the expectant <laughs> family parking spot as well, which is, you know, really. <laughs> <laughs> Emergency doctors kind of parking. So but that um, was so Brent Cross shopping center in the UK. Ericsson yep. was the uh, supplier of uh, mobile phones and uh, they had a press kit. You'd get it. You open it up and you hear Desmond Llewellyn's voice. Now pay attention, 007. Um, so I sold it for the princely sum of one dollar, but uh. so we've gone from Berlin to Stoke Poges, and as James says, and Brent Cross, and, yeah. a, and a car park yeah. in North London. Um, it's Hamburg, isn't it? Or is it Berlin? It's, it's Hamburg. All oh, right, Hamburg. Sorry, so we've gone Doesn't from matter. Hamburg 
Hamburg Hamburg to Stoke Poges to to Brent Cross, all in in a couple of seconds. Mm. So, so one of Carver's uh, leg- allegedly legitimate anchors uh, obviously agreed to uh, tape this thing. <laughs> yeah, thankfully so like, they didn't. Thankfully they didn't get Wolf Blitzer reading it because you know, sink the believability of it. I brought this up at the prior to recording, and I'm just going to say it now. Uh, some people absolutely love this scene. Some people think Vincent. Um, <laughs> Um, Chevelli is, uh, is fantastic in this and he and, 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 can I, can I and just read he, a, tweet, a tweet from Phil he said yeah. um, there are two types of Tomorrow Never Dies fans those who think the Dr. Kaufman scene is the single best scene in the film and those that are incorrect <laughs> <laughs> well I hate to be incorrect Phil uh, look at that videotape VHS um, uh, look, that's the quickest way to get things on the news it's, it's <laughs> It's not that I don't like this, this, the scene. It's just that I think the two actors are playing it very differently. Um, Vincent is doing a really great job as a kind of Roger Moore era villain. Uh, and Brosnan is playing it like, I don't know, Daniel Craig might play it later on. Mm. Um, he's, he's playing it dark and serious Bond. Um, and... Um, yeah, Vincent. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, the, 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 scene, the scene sticks out like a sore thumb because of that. It just, uh, it's, the, it's, it's so very the two odd. of them together are not. They're not really gelling in this scene, and it's not that I don't like either of them. It's also intercut with the goons with the rubber mallets. You know. Mm. I, I, really, I really like it. Um, I, I agree that it tonally feels odd. Uh, especially as we, you know, they were trying to sell us so much on the Paris Bond or in love thing, and then that, you know that this scene is happening and she's just there in the foreground, dead. No, it's, some, it's of, some, of, some of some of her best acting. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it, you know it's memorable for good reasons. I think one of people's biggest takeaways from this is Kaufman. I think he's great. I like this kind of camp. I read it I read it as kind of a stair step as being like Bond just has this serious moment. He's found out a woman that he loves is dead, actually mourns over her body, which I think is an amazing thing to see. And then this is supposed to be sort of a bridge or a stair step where Bond is still serious. There is an attempt to sort of lighten the mood. Uh, in order to move to the next component, which is sort of the the key component, I think that they're trying to work towards is the car chase sequence. And I don't know if it's successful or not. I think that depends on audiences, but I do feel as though it's a progression from serious to sort of trying to blend or or knead out the seriousness with with a little bit of humor, and then moving it to Bond enjoying himself um, as he drives the the car. I think it also works on a level of just like like the fact that they are so mis- mis- mismatched in their tone like it, it, it I get the sense that Kaufman is really getting under Bond's skin because he is behaving the way that he's behaving and I think it's the kind of thing where if you'd have cast a different actor other than Vincent Chiavelli in this part yeah. you would have got something very very different yeah he does get to use a, a Heckler & Koch uh, P7 though so I, I guess that that makes it okay um, is that the small gun moment. with a few bullets <laughs> it is a small gun with a few bullets yeah. Yeah. I was about to say uh, my fallback on this scene is like you have a half dozen writers who have contributed and it's like even though only one got credit like who knows who did what um, you know the villain did get that great line about I could shoot you from Stuttgart and get the same effect 
Um, but was that the right line for the scene? I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. I would would it worked would it have worked better had that scene followed the car chase versus being in front of the car chase? Because mm-hmm. we've gone from him losing somebody we're told he was in love with mm-hmm. to now shit eating grin gadgetry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, within a minute. It is a it is a great shit eating grin though. Yeah, and this is your big sort of climax to the first half of the film, isn't it? We're an hour in at this point. I, I think this is, this, this, this has got to be the highlight of the film. I mean, yeah. in terms of well, just film, in, in, ter- in terms of movie making and Bond moments and all the rest of it. I think Michelle Yeoh having a solo action sequence, really, for, like a woman having a solo action sequence is way up there, but I do love this mm. scene. I'm mm. just saying, like, I think that's also like a co equal highlight for me is this scene and that for scene. Me it's not a high, for me, it's not a highlight at all. I hate this. It's. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, I hate it. David, it's, it's, it's just a, it's just a, it's just a car, like, like in Diamonds of Forever, we were talking about how they just have that car chase scene around a garage. In a car park. In a yeah. car park. Um, it's the same thing. It's just multi story. Um, there's the double header this week (laughs) and I just and I think also the fact that we all know I mean okay so this is Hamburg in in the movie but Brent Cross Shopping Centre isn't exactly kind of where I would pitch uh, putting exoticism it's just it's just boring it's you know uh, uh, um, the stunt work may be fantastic and so on but it's just boring as hell I think the music elevates it. Like oh. for me, I love this scene. I think it's really kinetic. I like the edits. I like the music. A little, it is a little bit Mickey Mouse music, where it's sort of punctuating little action moments and beats here and there. I like that just as a sensory experience. I know that there's no emotional investment yeah. in the scene other than is Bond going to get out of it alive? But it just as a as a sensory experience, I enjoy the visuals. I enjoy the sounds. I'm I'm having a good time with it. And this is another place where David Arnold's working in surrender into the underscore, you know, his song. <laughs> the company There's I was mentioning just... that I was before doing the video wall stuff with, we had a, like an 18th century water mills, our HQ in the South of England. And we had a home theater, uh, big cinema built in there. And when this came out on DVD, first thing we plugged, plugged in was this, um, sequence with all huh. the bass turned up and it shook the building <laughs> <laughs> and it was awesome. There's, um, there's a, there's a, a New Zealand uh, Bond spoof um, where uh, just looking at the Calthrops coming out of the back of the, that's what those spiky things are called, by the way, people, um, coming out of the back of the car. Um, in a kind of a spoof of that, um, the, uh, the guy presses a button and a small stone falls out of the back. And it... <laughs> 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 and, um, and, it, and it disables all the following cars. It's pretty funny. It's like a, it's like a rock the size of like a like a thumb. No. Um, Real quick, this I is an amusing bit, but this gadget is only good for one thing, and it's only good if the cable is at a certain height. Which thankfully, <laughs> right. it's at that height. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. I, I never liked that part of it. Ah, I, um, I'm, I'm fine with it. It's cheesy nonsense, but I like it. I was about to say also in terms of the soundtrack, this is the best. One of the best tracks on the soundtrack. I agree. And I love that, you know, Bond is having fun with it. It's like he's playing a video game, but the actual thing that he's playing is in real life. And, you know, my students always get a chuckle at the way that he sort of parks the car and brings it back. You know, for Hmm. me, I find, again, it has some of that more like humor, 
from the Roger mm. Moore era. And I, I'm, I'm a sucker for the Roger Moore era. So just to sort of see yeah. that, is it tonally out of step with, you know, discovering your a, a lover dead? Yes. Um, but I think it's a way to sort of pivot and shift the, the, the film forward. Uh, to the yeah, next where, state phase. Where that where Avis office is, is a shopping mall and it's actually going out of business this week. This oh. is not South China oh, Sea. Um, this is this is some chilly, very cold air base in, in England, I think. Oh. Um, uh, hence hence the reason it looks so so uh, fucking windy. Hence Jack um, Wade's getting blowed sideways in his Hawaiian yeah. shirt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that movie, uh, by the way, just in case anyone wants to watch it, was called Tong and Ninja. Um, <laughs> just uh, anyway, yeah. No, it's. Uh, it, it, I think. Um, I think they did. They colorize the sky or something at some point to to try to make this look a little bit more um, South Chinery. Hmm. Well, especially with Wade wearing his Hawaiian shirt, uh, looks so cold. All the gray that looks like a thundercloud <laughs> yeah. in the distance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I always just thought it was the helicopter blades that were making them it look like the wind effects, but it is just the wind, isn't it? Yeah, they're too far yeah. away from the helicopter now. Huh. Um, now, is this the last time we've seen Bond in military uniform? Yes. And is this yeah. the American Q? What's that? Yeah, <laughs> I guess, yeah. It's kind of a, it's like, get me a guy who's a bit like Paul Reiser. <laughs> How is that not Paul Reiser? No. Oh God, I always thought it was. I always thought it was. There you go. That's that's how successful that piece of casting was. <laughs> I think it's because we have um, what's it's his like name in Aliens? Capone. He's coming up, yeah. isn't he? He's putting Brosnan's um, uh, parachute right. on. Yeah, it's like getting Paul Reiser at quarter of the cost. Some quality, quality face touching going on here. That was oh, a different yeah. episode. I think his um, his name is um, Al Matthews, um, and he played Sergeant Apone in uh, Aliens. That's it. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's got that great military voice. He's kind of like Ali Ermi, where if you just want to get someone in to do some military jargon or some technical stuff, just get them in, and their voices are just perfect for it. Yeah, I think the thing he was cast in Aliens because he was actually a Vietnam ser- sergeant in Vietnam. Um, right. Yeah. So you know he plays he plays military well because that's exactly what he was. Yeah. Yeah. So here's a connection for you. So Aliens, Peter Lamont film, Tomorrow Never Dies, not a Peter Lamont film because oh, he was yes. doing he was doing Titanic. He was winning right. his yeah. Oscar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have never seen Titanic. You don't need to. No, you know the ending, right? <laughs> the ship sinks. Oh, I'm sorry. Spoiler. Wasn't, wasn't, wasn't Jonathan alert. Price in... Hang on, hang on. Uh, right, somebody crack IMDb. Wasn't Jonathan Price in Titanic 2? Titanic 2? <laughs> the the shit comes up. I'm looking it up. Something in the back of my head just said Jonathan Price, Titanic 2. So, Like Titanic number was. 2? Like there was a sequel? Yes. No. Or Titanic T O O like Titanic as well. No, Titanic <laughs> Titanic comma T O O. Okay, I was like, there's a second Titanic. Like, wait, yes. what? Yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's it's called Raise the Titanic, and they have to bring the Titanic up because there's special secret material inside. Uh, yeah, there's a Titanic. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise does this for real in in his last movie, but 
you know, it's done for done for the first time a halo jump in. I think this is the first time we ever see a halo jump in any movie. I could, could be <laughs> right. wrong, but I think it's uh, right. so, so. I'm confused. Jonathan Price was in tickets for the Titanic. Uh, um, oh, is he just selling there, them? Yeah, but there was is that a Titanic. prequel. <laughs> <laughs> but there is. <laughs> Come to the ship sink. <laughs> I'm crying. So, so, so here's, the, here's, the, here's the synopsis. Um, a century after the fateful voyage of the original modern luxury liner Titanic 2 set sail, will this ship suffer the same fate as her namesake? What? <laughs> oh. Yeah. oh, never mind. I was about to say, there was this very successful novel called Raise the Titanic because mm. Titanic, it turned out, contained some special super secret material that the, you know, the Cold War powers want. And so they have to like raise the Titanic and it like it was made into a movie. It just bombed. It was just terrible. Michael Caine was in it, wasn't he? Am I something else? It was probably yeah. in his, uh, that was probably in Michael Caine's I'll Do Anything for Money phase. Um, <laughs> yes, along with Jaws 3. Jaws <laughs> 3 and, and the uh, Poseidon Adventure yeah, sequel. Oh, yeah. damn it, that's what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking yeah. of the Poseidon Adventure sequel. Yeah. I love the fact that we're just talking about random movies over Sorry. this. Yeah. <laughs> it's, well, no. it's sinking They're ship connected. Connection. Sinking ship movies. Okay, yeah. we'll, uh, Ray, uh, Alex so, Guinness so, was... Sorry. In Raise the Titanic. He was like the last surviving crew member of the Titanic in Raise the Titanic. And, mm-hmm. and I'm like, watch this. Like, he'd have to be like 95 years old. And this was 40 years ago. Hmm. So this is a bit so, like, again, in Fewer Eyes Only, where they go into the, you know, the, the, the sunken uh, spy ship. So it's got it's got kind of connections to, to that. But it also reminds me a little bit of uh, The Abyss, talking of um, sunken James Cameron movies. Yeah, where they uh, go into the into that uh, submarine. Titanic two, by the way, has got one point six out of ten on IMDb. (laughs) (laughs) Dear, we should. I think that's a watch along. Yeah, we should. (laughs) Oh, Michelle Yeoh's back. Yeah, here we go. She doesn't have a heels on. David, 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 you do a lot of you did a lot of underwater stuff. Could you recognize somebody that quickly? Um, I would say quite difficult. Uh, you, you look very different, <laughs> very different underwater because uh, the light changes a lot. Um, so very often you can't even tell your own diving partner uh, without difficulty. So uh, hmm. yeah, not that straightforward. Doesn't that exact thing happen in For Your Eyes Only? Uh, where where the door gets kind of closed by something yeah. falling yeah. over. Yeah. Um, yeah. The difference here is, of course, Bond's not wasting his oxygen with one-liners. I wish I'd done that commentary. Like, uh, remember, conserve, conserve your oxygen. Speak only when necessary. I could have said that whilst we were in the submarine, <laughs> but I waited to be outside of the submarine to tell you that. Yes, yes he's lecturing her about conserving his air supply. <laughs> <laughs> the the thing I love about that scene though is Melina gives him an eye roll. <laughs> <laughs> I think if um I think I might be able to if we talk about uh, for is only enough I might be able to do my own edit where I can pretend <laughs> <laughs> that I was actually involved in in doing it. So all of that Another. was done at the Pinewood underwater uh, tank. 
Um, yeah. And they had the production had a lot of problems with lighting and also keeping everything dust dust and debris free because mm. obviously they had to keep flooding the set. Ah. Yeah, it's very easy to kick up uh, um, silt in the water and it clouds things up very, very quickly. I mean, yeah, I, I, have, I have dived wrecks and uh, you, can, you need to be careful because otherwise the people behind you can get lost very, very easily. Um, it'd be really interesting to see a kind of a supercut of all of the, the, the different... I, when I said it about the out, out the paddock um, water set, but like also the uh, the inside one, because obviously that's the same uh, same set where Craig swims up from the frozen lake and yeah. all sorts of others. So uh, it'd be really interesting to sort of see a, a sort of a cut together of all of those different um, different locations. This is Thailand, uh, by the way, people um, uh, doubling. Um, mm. Filming the, conditions. The real location. Filming conditions were miserable. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've been to Thailand probably conservatively 15 times. Uh, my dad lives there, by the way, so that's why I, I uh. go there so often. Um, and this building is is still pretty prominent. Um, it it isn't exactly uh, have like they this the poster, there was some. <laughs> that, that the poster is still there, um, but the, um, the the building is is slightly changed by CGI in this movie. Um, they do, do a little bit of extension work on it, but um, but you can. It's still a very prominent. Uh, building in thailand i always um, found the set to be an interesting mixture and i think it has to do like i align it with that big uh banner of of of, of carver um sort of just like looking out over thailand it, it really to me represents sort of the white man coming in and sort of taking over this area and you see that 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 aligned with this office setup where you have different statues or or decoration or ornaments all being pushed to the side all being pushed outward and him bringing in you know these big screens and you know other other mechanical things that he needs to the center of of the room and it sort of aligns with you know when we get to the action sequence the the motorcycle action sequence which is interesting and cool and dynamic but it also takes place you know in 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 uh, average local spaces and you know James Bond and Wei Lin and and the people pursuing them kind of destroy people's livelihoods and they go through their houses mm. and so Bond is a lot more destructive as well as Elliot Carver um, outside of say the UK than he is in in Thailand so I always found you know some of the optics of this and and some of the significance of the images and the actions just it's just food for thought how, and and how do we feel about this as we're watching it hmm. I love the Empire will strike back Glenn. yes that's great yes can you well, say the goons the goons that are protecting Elliot Carver here are aiming their guns at him through Bond so you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm. Not, not the shirt not... It's nice, isn't it? I got one like that um, from the fisherman well, that they killed on yeah, the boat. They, yeah, they just like picked him up in his scuba gear, and then here's his shirt. Yeah, here's a shot from Thanks. the four for eights fisherman we shot off the boat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it looks a bit big on him. It does look a bit big. It's obviously a bigger, bigger fisherman down there. <laughs> bigger, bigger fish to fry. 
Okay. Um, it's probably it's one a of very unused uh, Ricky J, late, the late Ricky J. Yeah, there's a deleted scene again. It's on the Blu-ray of him. You, he like he had this whole gimmick where he could fling cards like he can do in real life, and he can like you know smash a glass in half with them and that kind of thing. And they brought that into the film. That's presumably why you cast Ricky J in this part, right, right. and then completely cut it all out. But he did like yeah have a card throwing moment here. Um, I don't know if they cut it up just because people wouldn't believe it. You could do that. Yeah, maybe. You know, it's a shame because it just completely devoids him for of anything. Uh, also, I think they just established here that the lead henchman was a um, oh protege of uh, the other late Doctor Kaufman uh, Hamburg. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So he's going to he's going to make Bond feel pain to get revenge and all that. Stuff. Break his record, yeah, all that kind of bullshit. Um, yeah. I, I don't I don't love this scene. Um, I could be wrong, but is this the sequence where um, when they escape from? See, you don't see the scar on on Brosnan's upper lip at this point, right? Um, hmm. And it's I think during the uh, explosions uh, that happen outside on the ledge of the building, uh, I think some some of the shrapnel gets into his. Um, his top lip or something like that. Well, wasn't and, he whacked uh, in the pre-title sequence filming? That's where he got cracked on the lip, wasn't it? Oh, I, 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 for some reason, I don't know why, I always thought it was in this se- in this particular sequence, but I could be wrong. Again, this building is kind of extended through CGI, um, mm. but otherwise they are kind of there. Um, but, yeah, I, just, I, I always assume that this was where it is, but it's interesting because you see certain elements of the film where he has – got a scar and somewhere he hasn't do you want to mention anything about the game here calvin about how all of a sudden you're jumping off a building <laughs> yeah there's no setup for Waylon is really poorly introduced in that game um you, just she's just introduced as they walk into carver's uh, room for his big speech about torture uh and yeah they just jump off the building they don't set up that there is a poster that they're clinging on to or anything yeah. lisa actually you might like the game there's a level where you play as Waylon, and it's the damned hardest thing in the world it's so difficult i don't recommend it but it's it's there Oh yeah! <laughs> I just finished my Lara Croft video game like last night after trying it twice to beat it. So I feel very victorious right now. So I might be up for the challenge. Oh, real it's quick! It's a shame she was wearing uh, uh, her high heels to pierce the uh, the window in that. It would have been handy, yeah. That's when it would have been. Real quick, I um, think this sequence is what Spottiswood was talking about about how long it would take to no. film it and like why filming dialogue scenes was a lot easier. This, <laughs> just lucky everybody, not... everybody leaves their keys in the ignition. And, and, I was just about um... to say, of all the bikes that are lined up in that... Um, yeah. there, BMW. Like, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, but his argument is take the bike, it's faster, and then he picks the heaviest, unwieldiest bike. I mean, it's a 1200cc bike, right? So it's got power. But one thing it can't really do is do... 90% of the things that it's actually doing in these, <laughs> in these shots. Um, it, it's not very manoeuvrable. It weighs fucking ton. Um, most, you know, when it's going up over these, um, you know, balconies and things, it had to, they had to reinforce all of that with uh, tubular steel in order to support the weight of the bike. God. It's, um, yeah, it's, it, it's really not the motorcycle to choose. For, okay. For okay. Ben, this. um, 
just wait till we do the watch along to No Time to Die and we're doing the Aston Martin stuff in Matera. (laughs) (laughs) I I will say at least the Triumph that they use in that can actually do pretty much all the things. Yeah, but what about the DB5? Um, how do we feel about this whole dynamic? Uh, the fact that the, the gimmick of the sequence, obviously, being that they're uh, manacled together and having to maneuver around and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm a big fan of it. I think it's I a think it's interesting. Really clever, yeah. yeah, it's interesting way to do an action sequence. I don't know if it's terribly Bondian, but I, I like it all the same. It's a twist on um, you know scenes from previous movies, previous Bond mm. movies. Yeah, you know, just trying to freshen up. I that's how I took it. Uh, yeah, I had no problem with it. I think um, it's also think- interesting that she she like he's driving. She's the one who's doing the physical labor. She's the one who's oh, moving yeah. from the front to the back. And I feel mm-hmm. as though like this film has two very different action styles. Pierce Brosnan's Bond has one type of like fighting and action style. Yep. But Michelle really Yeoh is very Jesus. different. She is very fluid. She is somebody who likes to do her own stunts. And you can see them showcasing her and her abilities um, and mm-hmm. of course, some stunt people helping out too. But really, it is mm-hmm. highlighting her and her ability, um, and and Bond is just sort of plugging along. So I mean, I've always sort of mm-hmm. read it, and I think that this sort of supplements the lack. And I don't feel like there is sexual chemistry between them, and so I always have an issue with the ending. But it's supposed to sort of have their bodies sort of intertwined together, mm-hmm. so they might not be together sexually, but maybe quote unquote there's tension. But I've never really felt it um, mm-hmm. in, in any of these these scenes. Something real quick about the score in this sequence is like David Arnold did not have a complete film to score. He had to score it in like thirds. Uh, Again, going back to the whole hectic production schedule. He did have the storyboards though, but still. Yeah. Yeah. But he didn't have actual footage. Um, We're going to come up soon to two things that bug me. One is the physics of the helicopter and two, Um, I think. Why is it it where it is? Why is it lower than... Yeah, but also I think the worst test crash dummies of the series. Um, so <laughs> when it hits the wall. So there are two. So there are two stunt performers doing the actual stunt. One is Wendy Leach, who um, is the second, the wife of the second unit um, guy. Uh, help me out here. Um, Vic Armstrong. Vic Armstrong, thank you. Um, and, and, and daughter uh, of. George Leach. Uh, George Leach. Hmm. Um, and uh, Jean-Pierre Goy does the, the actual uh, writing of this stunt. This, yeah. They again, had to put the blades scene, in in CGI, but other than that, it was put, done for real. So the blades are done CGI. It's a done for real shot. I don't understand why the helicopter is lower than them. It makes no <laughs> sense because they would be trying to shoot at them. I also think it's a beautiful piece of um, set design because obviously they did they shot it in the UK um, and they've managed to marry up uh, that street very, very beautifully with the actual location. So, again, hmm. uh, a really great piece of production design for that particular stunt. But were, they, says, per, were they Perrier cans that you just... Uh... <laughs> it may well have been. It's a very popular water in, in Thailand. Um, <laughs> sorry, Vietnam, right? Vietnam? Vietnam. Oh, Vietnam, sorry. Um <laughs> Yeah, this 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 whole bit here. I mean, it's it's th- this is an example of a screenwriter having a great idea, that but not work. checking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, would would not be the first time. I.e., plutonium in the world is not enough. Yeah. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah physics, physics are kind of out the window on, in this whole action scene. Bruce must have skipped physics at high school. <laughs> <laughs> it is quite cool, though. I mean, I, yeah. It, when I was 10 years old watching this, it was the best. <laughs> um, but yeah, again, Lisa is absolutely right. The way that she's she's moving around, she's doing bulk of the of the physical action, um, and and pretty much the one who is dispatching, um, you know, the baddies. So it's uh, you know she's she's certainly more than a match for Bond. I think she surpasses him. But that's, I mean, we can all have our, our opinions on that, but I think she's just a, a better agent, even if it's just by a little bit. Hmm. By the way, do they have uh, police departments in Vietnam? Right. Just, <laughs> just curious. Hmm. So here, here we go into the... Um, you can't do that on that bike. The Marks um, and Spencer's clothes dummies that are about to die. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> I love this Bond theme though. So good. Oh, yeah, there they go. I never noticed that till you just brought it up. Well, you'd think they'd at least arrange like the joints, like in the wrist and stuff. Oh, so some so, vaguely so human. You, you, you see the little kid having a bath on the right with his bare mm. butt, mm. Yeah. right? I never noticed sti- that. Right. The sti- well, here's what's here's what's hilarious. We were doing a magazine years ago, and. Um, we, we got some more official stills from the film years later. And the, the, the still photography from this sequence was actually the reverse shot. Oh. So you get the, the little boy is like completely <laughs> butt naked front <laughs> on. And I was like, uh, hey, guys, we need to crop this photo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my but that gosh. Got, M- MGM really? released it. MGM released it. That's Jeez. so weird. That's so. Anyway, sorry. It just reminded me of that. <laughs> There's like laws against issues, that. Issues, issue, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. And issues with kids, kids in Bond films, you know. Dang. I love the way she does that. So, so good. It's um, so nice, he, isn't it? And, he, and he's like, "What?" Mm. It's so it's so rare for somebody to get the upper hand on Bond like that. Mm. Also, this was this was where uh, Bond said he never grew up, and Bruce Ferris well, face said, masks. That's face not masks. true. Face masks. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Wear your mask. Can I also say this is this is why. Yeah, speaking Sorry. of face masks, somebody tweeted in. Um, what do you think Carver Media Group would cut? Co- how would how would they cover the coronavirus? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to point out something really, really quickly. You know, a big six foot three white guy in the uh-huh. middle of Vietnam stands out like a sore thumb. She yeah. blends in like that, and. Um, I just clicked my fingers, by the way, just like Brosnan does in um, <laughs> The World Is Not Enough or whatever it is. Um, it's just, I think it just goes to show... Snaps that, the victim's you know, mind. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we're going to see this awesome fight scene. I'm not going to say yeah! much. We're going we're to sh- shut up while you can talk. Yeah. Oh, I'm just like... The fan in me just watches this. I'm a big fan of Michelle Yeoh's work beforehand. But I remember the first time I saw this, I was like, who is she? How did she learn how to do it? How come Hollywood action stars don't do it? And it led me down a beautiful path of studying Hong Kong action women, Chinese action women, and of course, understanding their their influence on Hollywood. And just sort of a point about this. So um, 
basically Hollywood filmmakers were, became fascinated with Hong Kong action stars and they incorporated Hong Kong action in three phases. They brought in directors in the early 1990s. Um, and that's where you get white men in Hollywood stylized in Hong Kong action. In the mid to late 1990s, they started to bring over Hong Kong stars. They tend to be more of the hard bodied stars. So Jackie Chan, Jet Li, but Michelle Yeoh is considered with Tomorrow Never Dies to be part of that cohort, uh, being very sort of physical and body based. And then, of course, there's a third wave where action choreographers came over into uh, Hollywood films. So you get, uh, I call them the Yoon brothers. So Wu Pin Yoon and Chen Yan Yoon, who did the action choreography for The Matrix, Kill Bill, um, yeah. Charlie's Angels, and the like. So for me, seeing Michelle Yeoh being part of this group coming over just showcases the fact that she was such an action superstar. She was known for being a real action superstar. She was somebody who fought um, to be presented. If you watch uh, Super Cop, Super Cop number two, I think the one where she stars with Jackie Chan, he didn't actually want her in the film. He wanted uh, just Maggie Chung to be his love interest. And so she went to the director, Stanley Tong, and she said, no, I want to be featured and I want to do my own action stunts and action sequences. And I don't want to be sexualized in my film. Um, and she's featured in the end credit reel like Jackie Chan. And so for me watching her, I feel as though her image and stardom have come like full sail from how she was in her Hong Kong action film sort of brought into this Bond film where she's not overtly sexualized or fetishized, where she's valued for her fighting skills and her abilities and where she can be romantically unattached. So she will work with Bond, stay focused in on the job and on the mission and move forward. And that is so much I feel like I'm just talking about my book, Warrior Women, because like that's the stuff that I've been theorizing. And the the pace in which I'm talking just shows my sheer level of excitement and admiration for Michelle Yeoh for sort of fighting the good fight, um, pushing for, forward for women in action films and really representing on the big screen the the heroic potential that that women can have. So I love Michelle Yeoh. Yeah. And well, also there's the, the more basic uh, issue. She's also a great actress. Oh, Crazy. yeah. Yes. Rotations. Absolutely. Do you know, Lisa, who choreographed her, her fight scenes, whether uh, how much she was involved in it for, in this uh, film? I, mean. I don't. I don't know, but I know I, that I, she brought over stunt workers and stunt teams to work yeah. with her on this all, film. All, all the goons were her stunt crew, weren't they? And yeah. I think there was a lot of issues with the insurance and how much they were going to allow her to do herself. Mm-hmm. Which is a, a thing in the Bond series that's always been a. He studied Oriental languages at Cambridge, but he can't uh, <laughs> he can't figure out that keyboard. Um, the only Fair problem I have with this that movie, yeah, the only problem I have with this scene is literally coming up when he um, he takes the P ninety nine. I feel like. Uh, <laughs> I think I mentioned it before. I think it's something that uh, if he'd asked Q to get him one, Q would have got him one. Um, and it Bud- shouldn't budget, be budget cuts. Yeah, I, you know, he shouldn't have been. He shouldn't have got it. But I feel yeah, but, but hang on. We, 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 with Q's relationship with Bond, Bond says, "Q, get me a P ninety nine." Q says, "Yeah, well, he can wait for that." The other thing is, if you, if you want if you want to counterfeit Omega, um, Vietnam's a good place to. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is also.
also an interesting scene and why I sort of argue that Michelle Yeoh is, is presented as a superior agent. I think of, say, a film like Moonraker, where Bond sort of outs Dr. Holly Goodhead based yep. on her gadgets, where he's in the know and she's sort of the butt of the joke. Whereas in this film and in this, this scene in particular, he's kind of at the butt of the mm-hmm. joke. He's tripping Damn. things. He's he he doesn't know how to uh, type utilizing Chinese characters, and she has better gadgets than than he does. We don't see the Chinese version of Q, but she is sort of she's sort of decked out with all of the good stuff. And so I, I think I it's say, a oh, yeah. component the, of the film. The Chinese the Chinese the, uh, intelligence version of Q is a gun nut because she's got like fifty guns in that one cupboard. How does that mean she need? Also likes watches as well. Mm-hmm. So, David, are you getting the feels? Are you getting the tingles now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> Tabasco. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I can. I can see a more play kids in the fun movies. <laughs> to land. So, I've been to Thailand a lot of times, uh, and I've been out sort of to these islands, but I've never actually been to uh, James Bond Island, uh, in, in quotes. But I have been I have been here, but I haven't been to um, the actual Bond Island from uh, Man with the Golden Gun because uh, it, it's just become something other than it, it was. would have been, I guess, I, I will go eventually, I suppose. But um, but the uh, I love this this bit prior to the the whole stealth boat stuff this is a nice kind of moment where they actually can speak to each other and you know i think i think uh, this this builds their relationship mm-hmm. um and i love the location i love the fact that they're on this this junk kind of just you know this fishing boat just getting out there it's nice it's a nice little scene uh, i i think mm-hmm. it's nice it's better than what follows uh, i think <laughs> all of the stuff on the stealth boat um doesn't really super work for me that that well but model shot yeah it's a good that, model shot though. The wow. ding- so that's them for reals and then when it goes to wide it's a model yeah, the ah, little ding- yeah, it's, yeah. It's, that's so, a model uh, shot yeah you can actually sit like there's i think that the model exists somewhere though it's just like there's there's just two like little um action man figures or gi joe kind of style figures just in hmm. this, uh, this little zodiac it's quite funny I agree with Ben uh, just about that last scene as well. I think it's a really lovely, like them just sort of getting prepped to go to work, so to speak, um, works really well. I know we've touched upon this, but still at this point, I'm not getting romantic energy. They had a moment of sort of just sort of staring at each other in um, more like admiration than sexual tension. Yeah, which is, yeah, I mean, this is, it's a bit like uh, Camille in Quantum of Solace, I suppose, where it's sort of like, yeah, I, I don't need these two to sort of consummate their relationship in your traditional sort of uh, man-woman movie way. Um, I, I would kind of be, I would have preferred it if this ended with them just sort of going their separate ways, a bit like Bond and Camille. I, uh, I, I agree a hundred percent, hundred percent. It just, it, it kind of goes against everything that we've seen of their buildup of their relationship. Why, mm. why does she suddenly need to go? Why, why, why doesn't he drop her off on the other side and then move the boat? Right. <laughs> Sorry. Also, yeah. also a real quick aside, I'm not really sure the proportions of the model of the boat no. and the mm. things match up. It's, no, there's an establishing model shot of them pulling their boat in. That's all model, and then it cuts to them in close up on the 007 stage. But yeah, it's 
It's only when we're picking it apart, and as per yeah. our reviews, yes, we pick things apart. <laughs> but I, I, I was so confused by the geography of this stealth yeah. boat, like the size, the proportions. I, I, it took me ages to figure out what is where, because when they go inside, it seems to be a labyrinth of tunnels yeah, and rooms right. and engine rooms. It's a bit like yeah, the TARDIS, it, though, I think, Calvin. <laughs> it certainly seems that way. It doesn't look that, like that from the outside. It, it, it's like the uh, exterior of a twenty-foot boat and the interior of a eighty-foot boat. Yeah, yeah. I, I love this. I love this admiral here. He always looks like he's chewing a wasp when he's issuing orders. It's great. He's a bad guy in a lot of movies. He's the the Nazi in. Uh, That's right. Uh, Last Crusade, whatever it is. Um, yeah. One of those faces that just turns up a lot. Like Hugh Bonneville, who we just saw as well from Downton Abbey. Jason Watkins was in The Crown. We're going to see Pip Torrens also in The Crown. By the way, if you're a flunky of Carver, I hope he's paying you well, because he's obviously a little (laughs) hard guy to work for. Yeah. People worked for Trump, Trump, though, didn't they? (laughs) Not for very long, usually. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Yeah, after the events of this film, all of his employees will be releasing books. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's how they make their money. (laughs) Sorry, David, I interrupted you. No, I was going to say the same thing about writing a book. (laughs) 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 I like like this little bit of like um, fainting that Bond does with the body of this guy, you know, like, oh, I'm dead. When we we did the Is Bond Dead episode, I think Didn't Tomorrow Never Dies come top in the number of times people think he's dead? Yes. I think this climax has like three or four (laughs) times. Also, a late late friend of mine coined this as machine gun Bond. This was clearly the phase they were going through with uh, Bond using machine guns a lot. Yeah, it's it's what I, I always call commando Bond. What do you all? What do you think of the set design here? Because we have sort of the low ceiling, we've got like the lights making sort of sort of lines and shapes. Do you like this set? Is does this live up to Bond in terms of what you would expect a layer to be or a version to be? It's like a mini version of of the uh, Lipperus tanker, Mm. Um, and it kind of, but without without any of the panache or style. Mm. That's my feeling. Yeah, it's a bit, a bit like the Death Star to me. Hmm. Yeah. But without the scale. Hmm. Meanwhile, I suspect the Carver Media shareholders meeting is kind of interesting. What's this stealth boat thing? <laughs> oh, never mind. Never mind. Uh, nothing to see here. Uh, <laughs> what is that? Very good. Yeah. Um. And here, oh, off camera, that. you can see Bruce Fierstein writing the lines on a whiteboard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> can you see? Can you? Could you just see Anthony Hopkins doing that? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I I saw Transformers Five. I know it's not beneath his dignity. <laughs> he would have done it. I don't know. I mean, Anthony Hopkins could do Odin and like lend the character dignity. I that's not true. Sure about doing. I don't think you can do. I don't think you can make a. Re- like do something as racist as that and, and still come out of it with, um, you know, calling it dignified. Yeah. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty shocking. Um, mm. 
I mean, okay, you know, like all of this stuff and all of the critiques that we get when we, we, we bring up problematic elements of Bond is always like, think about when it was made and, you know, it's got to be in context. Yeah, it was problematic in 97. Yeah, but it's problematic. Yeah, so like, yeah, yeah. 2020, and I, I love it's more so. How Carver has a collection of jam jars on his stealth boat. I, I, <laughs> is that from right? like the kitchen when they run out of marmalade? They just clean them yeah. and put them on the shelf? <laughs> I actually have a, a, a bit of a, of a weird compulsive uh, problem with uh, things like jars and so I, I and I, I clean up all the labels of them and keep them. Oh um, no, so do I. <laughs> I actually, I actually have a vast collection of jam jars for for no empty jam jars yes. for no reason. Yeah, so, I, 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 just, I can't throw them out. Just, <laughs> yeah, I can't throw them out either. There was no recycling bin on the stealth boat. That was the problem. <laughs> they collected glass every other Thursday. They just couldn't be bothered with it. Collect the glass every other. Oh man, that's funny. But I do, I do, I will say this. I do really like the fact that Bond is. And uh, we saw it earlier when he was u- utilizing the gadgetry, kind of in a different way. For me, this is one of the best things of the film. Is is. Um, Bond kind of being invented. Oh, the, the grenade in the jam jar was clearly an idea the right had. Where can we use it? Yeah, re, without any regard to like, does it make sense? Yeah, but it's it's a cool it's a cool thing. You know what's interesting? Just throwing this out. This reminds me of Goldeneye, where once again you have like there you had Natalia Simonova Bond trying to sort of deal with you know the the villain Alec Trevelyan. I was gonna say Sean Bean, but and again you have like this this collection of Bond, Waylon, and 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 Elliot Carver. Like to me, there's just like a parallel in terms of having everybody congregate in the same space. And I think when it comes to back to back films, when I think about the in succession there's lack of variety and ingenuity plot wise in in this film because it just seems to replicate at least to me just some of the structure of the climax in 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 the other one yeah is this well, is also, uh, in the background as well yeah yeah uh, maybe but um <laughs> this this whole being on a walkie-talkie telling them to call it off you know is obviously reversed in the world is not enough with a villain hmm, hmm. I was about to say say, Carver's arrogance is uh, on display here because he thinks he can keep Waylon under wraps with a gun. One gun. Um, Just a a gentle arm around her shoulder as well. Yeah. Like, I I don't think so. Um, Yeah, it's always the classic thing. Like, if somebody asks you in a movie, what do I need to disarm this bomb? And if you're the only person that can do it, never say, I can do it. (laughs) <laughs> just, just me. Like, yeah. The moment you say just me, bang, you're dead. Mm-hmm. Yep. Got it's me. all set to go. Uh, I've said it all. Up. <laughs> what you should say is like, it's just no, not me, not me. Required, required <laughs> my 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 being alive. <laughs> By the way, in the novelization, the um, Raymond Benson named the uh, captain of the British ship after a friend of his because I know because the friend. <laughs> He's a mutual friend of of mine as well. So, um, you know, he did he did that in some of his novels and novelizations, naming <laughs> characters after friends of his. I have to say, one of my favorite parts um, 
is coming up and there's the moment when Waylon is all sweaty and she only has like oh, one yes. or two bullets left and you see her like like literally telling herself like you can do this stay calm focus and then she goes and moves forward and i love the human it's, aspect when i see yeah, that sweaty action women or whatever like that it's not just perfect and you're not just going to be good at everything but you have to like take courage i need to move forward and and, and take him out also, she takes inventory of the resources she has. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's it's both it's, uh, it, it's both determination and planning. Yeah. We just saw a cut scene in the American release because in the US release they didn't originally have the throwing star to the neck. I don't think they did in the UK release either. They no. certainly didn't have Bond's going to stamp on a guy's face in a minute. They yeah, definitely and, he, and he, he plunges a knife into somebody's chest that was cut out as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it was always really a confusing cut because you see the the goon going, Ugh, and then because they cut Bond stamping on his face, it was just a strange edit of some unnamed henchman. Random guy waking up. To, yeah, that's what you're saying, Lisa. Is I also like the fact that that it it's a good use of slow motion. Mm. Um, mm. Well, remember, uh, Spottiswood had edited a couple of Sam Peckinpah movies. And so that's so Peckinpah has a bit of an influence in this film via Spottiswood. Yeah, it's um, it's judicial use of slow motion. Uh, I think um, is what 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 films require or or, or complete lack of. Um, there, there's a a show called uh, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which makes a joke about how much uh, <laughs> slow motion they use. Um, you know, that we were running, we were running under about five minutes, so we just you know, put slow motion in wherever we could. Yes, but uh, I agree. We- it's, um, it's it's a great use of it in 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 this sequence. So, uh, question for you guys: of- Can we take a quick poll? Most realistic missile slash rocket the the one in you only live twice built in nineteen sixty seven or the cardboard or the cardboard cruise missile that wobbles on Stamper's foot into <laughs> another. <laughs> oh dear. Um. I think they're both they're both pretty bad. It's, uh, at least one of them doesn't have a wire hoisting <laughs> it up. Um, I, I, I can't wait to see or eventually get to see the the rocket they were building for for Bond twenty five. Yeah. Mm. This um so coming back to the point about uh, just checking her resources and stuff uh, it reminds me a bit of like the bit in the end of Die Hard where Bruce Willis is down to like you know two bullets and. Um, you know, he has to kind of uh, be be inventive with what what resources he's got, and and here she she does the same sort of thing. She knows that she can't take them all out with the with just those two shots, so she just uses the what she has, uses her environment. Yeah. Meanwhile, Bond has got unlimited ammunition. <laughs> of course. <he> does. <laughs> At this point, I'm mean, like star. <laughs> hey, hey, the the suppressor off. This. Why has he got a suppressor on at this? At this point? <laughs> a, a machine it's gun in one hand and a suppressor in the other. Because he's are wrong. James like, oh, Bond. He just doesn't <laughs> have time to take it off. On. <laughs> but again, just about geography, I'm like, where the hell even is this? Has he just been fumbling I around mean, at the back of this room while Wayland's <laughs> off doing all and, the important uh, stuff? And here's, here's another like Bond villain 
this design flaw, if you're going to have like rocket launchers, don't have them so you can turn them inside against yeah. your headquarters. <laughs> <That's what laughs> well, it's have like the uh, outside. It, it's like the um, indicator danger. Like, oh, right. <laughs> I, I just find that the to, to Calvin's point about geography. You know, this set is similar in sense to to the the, the, the boat, in, the sort of the the liparous in. Um, you know in its design right mm. and you never get a sense of like you never get confused about where you are inside the liparus mm. right but here i'm just like where are we where is he now yeah. what side of the boat is he on mm. it doesn't matter yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah because with the liparus it was like clearly the submarines were like captured in the bow of the ship and they, mm. that's how they went in and then you had that uh you could see where each submarine fit in. And so you knew that stuff had to be in the front of the ship. So when you see the front of the ship blow up, oh, that's where the subs were. Um, But it's also about the way it's filmed, Bill. Like, you know, you don't cross the line at any point. I feel like they were crossing the line all over the shop in in this sequence. Like, yeah. Well, it's like like, they don't care. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) You know, so that... You know, film geography is is a very you know, there are rules about how you do it, and I would imagine that you know spotters would know what you're doing in that sense. So just just to kind of create this kind of weird labyrinthine quality on a on a very basically kind of oblong set just mm. seems a very strange thing. Can you you know when there's big protracted action sequences in Bond movies, especially of recent years, um, you're in the behind the scenes of the making of you always see them like they've got a model. Of the set and they've got a little lipstick camera and they're actually working out the pass mm. of the camera and the action never seen anything like that for tomorrow never dies yeah <laughs> i uh. think it was literally done on the hoof mm. by the like way he, was... he's still at the back of the bloody room it's like so it's he... a minute ago he was running around like where yeah, yeah. Anyway. are they standing by the control room right now are they uh, I don't you know what prob- what probably happened like the film editors, they had to get this out for Christmas of 97. And mm. it's like, screw it. Just get the damn thing out. We'll just do the best we can. Because I remember reading but, something when they were filming the movie. It's like, supposedly Spotswood said, well, really hell, we had another three months. No, no, can't do that. Mm. So it, it might be like the deadline considerations just said, oh, okay. Uh, I, I, I hear what you're saying, Bill, but, you know, you, editing, you can only work with the footage that you've got. And if you're going to set your camera up in a certain position um, and film your actors in a particular position, like I don't, you know, I still don't really get the sense of which side of the boat he was on at nope. one point. And the sea drill just makes an appearance out of nowhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm. And along with Blofeld and Diamonds of Forever on the on the gurney, this is the worst. I'll stand still here while I get killed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you can understand people being paralysed by fear, but um, getting out the way doesn't seem like a like you know. It's 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 pretty much going on a straight line. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Dive one foot to the side. That's all you have yeah. to do. It reminds me of the guy in Austin Powers when he's going to get like, run over. He's like, no, and the guy, he's like, move out of the way. And he just screams, no. I feel yeah. like a little bit of that happening here. Like, just move. Just you know. And it's a very slow approach as well. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's got plenty of time. 
So Brosnan's Bond could text behind his back. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> A compliment, if I may. I do like the sound design of Carver's scream, sort of getting more and more high pitched and sort of blending in with the uh, the yes. meshing of the blades. I think it's quite a nice touch. Ah. You know what? That line that Brazen just said: "Give the people what they want." I don't know if it's intentional, but there was a very hated Hollywood mogul named harry Cohn ran columbia and then when he died red skelton said you know like why did so many people show up at his funeral well you give the people what they want (laughs) i don't know if fairstein or whoever like heard about that and decided to channel that but uh i think i just reminded it was deliberate yeah i always thought it was um deliberate bill but you know um Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just don't. Uh, I think well, a lot of the, the this kind of damsel in distress kind of stuff um, isn't. Uh, she, she doesn't say or make any noise during the during this. Neither does he. I just, I just feel like this is not something that would have happened, and I feel like although it might kind of be in keeping with the like, he's the hero and she's the. I just don't think it's it's kind of right it doesn't fit her character that we've seen everything of everything that we've seen of her up until this point also their relationship up until this point it just seems like a very strange choice to to have done this and it's also um they had to come back and film inserts after the production wrapped of stamper so i think that explains some of the cardboard missile we're about to see i would Mm. also say you know just to sort of fill out that point uh that was just raised her being underwater, it represents their first kiss, right? So he's going to give her mouth to mouth. He's going to save her life with the breath of life. But it also doubles as their first kiss. And for me, when they're laying on the raft um, and she's underneath him, it reminds me of Aki from You Only Live Twice, who says, um, I will be very happy serving under you. And so mm-hmm. I can't, be, there's so few Asian women in prominent roles in Bond films that I can't disassociate those two. So to see her, this strong, capable woman, you know, uh, residing under Bond on the raft, it just sort of sends up a, a bunch of bells and whistles um, for me. Whereas I think that there is a way of writing this scene where she is an active participant. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there's ways of doing it that you don't have to take away from her to bolster him, but maybe her awesomeness makes him look even better. You know, they could, they mm-hmm. could. Yeah, to make something better than just him on his own. Mm, I agree. Maybe, maybe I, I, I collaborators like instead of. I um, do like this escape, separate. though. Oh, I uh, don't know. Yeah. Bond, the, you know, the big moment being that he can't <laughs> unzip his vest. <laughs> <Zip it's laughs> well, the, well, one problem is the main villain's dead. So, like, okay, we're really just kind of, you know, trying to get to the end of the movie. Um, yeah. Well, the whole Stamper not having pain and pleasure mixed up thing, which was taken out of the script, it, so the, the climax makes no sense when you mm. don't know that. Yeah. Mm. This always bothered me that nothing, like, falls on Bond and Waylon and her chains are still yeah. holding up. It bothers me that she couldn't, like, climb up the chains or just wiggle out of them. It just looks like such an easy thing to get out of. Uh, and also, like, they're weighted. Like, so, like, if they were, if they were tied to something above them, and yeah. that thing then destroyed that would then sink so mm. why are they not being dragged down to the bottom of the ocean at this yeah. point right yeah. 
which would also be a kind of a that would be an interesting thing if they saw like the crane past them and they she started to be pulled down that would be kind of a point of mm. you know an exciting additional moment, jeopardy mm. additional jeopardy but no we mm. just get it like for because somehow here, just, here the stealth boat's just gone <laughs> it's just it's nothing yeah. now it's just wreckage and flame <laughs> So oh, the yeah. aluminum foil is sunk to the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> Felix will be along in a second to offer them a rope. Mm. Oh, exactly. And we've just <laughs> had a nuclear missile blow up, but um, <laughs> yeah. Um, mm. Maybe there was right. only half the plutonium. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> he handled it. He took it out, threw it somewhere. <laughs> oh dear. She's wearing one of Carver's uh, old yeah. tops. <laughs> she is. Money, with, money, <laughs> money, penny with a, money, penny with a clipboard. Mm. Ooh. All these model shots. Just you know, when you when you start to think of them as model shots, they just really stand out as model shots. <laughs> also, Bad. one last <laughs> slow motion shot of uh, Bond and Waylon, like Spotswood. I'm doing you proud, Slow it Sam. down. I'm doing you proud. Slow it down. <laughs> What uncomfortable place to sort of make out and like that's so at least Bond and Aki were in like you know a raft. Uh, uh Kissy, not not, not uh Oh yes, of course, hey, yeah, Kissy, yeah. sorry. Yeah. That's all right. You know, the other thing too is that they've gone like, Oh, let's um let's just not get picked up and then two weeks later they're they're still on that bit of floating thing. The the irradiated wreckage. And they just supposed to slowly die lying oh. on a lying on a hmm. uh, So now I feel we're a little mean on this film. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give it one credit. It's like it's under two hours. And it's oh. like with, with a five minute, you know, end title sprawl. So it's like closer to like an hour and 55 minutes. So it's like relative, it's pretty tight, especially right. compared we'll, to we'll, these we'll, days. We'll talk for another hour. <laughs> but particularly when you think of how much of the running time as well is like so much of that climax is these British guys on a ship so much of the first act is a bunch of British guys on a ship it, you know it, yeah. in terms of sort of Bond screen time uh, you know percentage versus the running length I think this would probably be one of the lesser ones really I like that it's I don't, here's the thing I don't like movies that are three hours long my bladder cannot last I cannot yeah. enjoy the beverage watching a film that's extremely long so for me I start to get a little antsy where I'm like can we just well okay let's be honest so I'm not a fan of factor I remember like sitting in the theaters kept looking at my watch like oh my gosh is it over yet knowing what the runtime was and where it was there's never a moment when I watch this film where I'm like oh gosh where are they what time is it and for some mm -hmm. of the issues that we've had this is a film that certainly moved us through the storyline I think it had it had a decent pace and none of us were like oh gosh is this ever gonna end yeah. um, and By I, the way, I go ahead I'm sorry I was about to say, I looked at my watch during uh, Quantum of Solace, the shortest film in the series. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, we're only 10 uh, minutes wait in. Until we do, <laughs> wait until we do Casino Royale. When we do Casino Royale, it's going to be like, the, I think we hit the three-hour mark halfway through. And, <laughs> you, you, you know, I, it's it's such a long movie, isn't it? Um 
Yeah, it's a great movie, but it, it, it for me it's such a two-parter. You know, when they when they get to the Miami airport sequence, and you know he foils the uh, you know the attack there. Um, I always feel like that's kind of like the conclusion of most kind of movies. You know, you know it's funny you mentioned that. I, I was pulling a st- uh, I was pulling a grab of the um, the fuel tanker guy that gets killed um, yeah, in that Carlos. the other day, and um, I was like, shit, we're an hour in. When I was scrubbing yeah. through the film to find yeah. it, I was like, oh. yeah. But it's, you're right, Lisa. So this, long... this tomorrow never dies. Motors, motors along, yeah. and I find it funny how um, Mark Forster for Quantum was like, "I'm going to make the fastest Bond film and everything." Um, he, the tomorrow never dies to me feels faster and it's longer, mm. and I don't think they it was something have... they're particularly trying to do. Whereas Forster they was both out have the bad, gate. Uh, parachute opening sequences, so that's a good tie-in. You know, it's a two-hander. <laughs> Um, Bond opens. Bond opens the parachute two feet above the ground and survives both times. <laughs> yeah. I I remember I remember when uh, you know that or during the Halo jump uh, when I first saw this and you know he pulls the cord and he's like fifteen feet above the water and I just remember thinking he's going to shatter every bone in his body when he <laughs> when when he does this um, and then I can't even remember the Halo out. jump. I think we were talking about Titanic 2 during that section. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was the, uh, I think it's the last um, Bond involvement for BJ, um, whose last name escapes yeah. me. Worth. Worth? The parachute yeah. specialist. Yeah, BJ Worth. BJ Worth, thank yeah. you. Um, yeah. I think that this is his farewell to the series. Yeah. The halo jump wasn't very well handled, was it? With the close-ups of Brosnan with their smoke machine. Yeah. Um, no, and um, and you know, I, I think when, it's egregious. The Mission Impossible series just completely lifted it, uh, along with a, 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 without apology or even you know lifted it with two people. That's that's the thing. Yeah. Oh, we'll double it, like you know. But yeah, you're, you're right. Mm. I still prefer yeah. this one to Quantum. Uh, the, if you know parachute rankings in Bond films. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, Quantum I don't like because it's so fakey and Craig with mm. his "Come here!" I really hate that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I prefer this. There, there you've got you've got an yeah. idea for a video there. Anyway, Calvin. Yeah. <laughs> rank, rank the rank the parachute jumps. Rank yeah. I mean, the one thing about Mission Possible is that. Cruz really did the jump. I don't think Henry Cavill did. And yeah. uh, well, he did I it like 100 the times. Like, tweeted tweeted out a picture of him and uh, Cruz in the plane just before the jump. But still, I mean, it's a direct lift. Now, I wouldn't argue against that at all. Um, if we're going to just, if we're going to do our roundups, so I'll just, I'll, I'll get mine in and out as fast as I can. Um, I don't, I don't hate this film there's a lot of things to love in this mostly michelle yo um and uh, and there's uh, there's some good good moments of as i said brosnan kind of being quite bondy uh, particularly in uh, stoke poges um but overall i think it's sort of f- feels a little bit like the last the kind of the mid the mid films of brosnan's tenure tend to be kind of a little bit homogenous and a little bit kind of um, you know, samey. And um, I think I mentioned it earlier. I think Bond, Brosnan's kind of portrayal of Bond in this isn't particularly lighthearted. He's quite dour in this and it kind of sets the tone for Bond. But whereas everyone else around him is kind of 
playing it a bit more for laughs. So I think tonally it doesn't quite work for me. I think if 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 everyone involved, including Brosnan, had been on the same page and just made it a really and gone full camp, it could have been a much more entertaining film. But um, to me, it's it's kind of it's a little bit tapioca. It's a little bit stodgy. But that's just my feeling. Well, I'll uh, I'll just make a quick comment. I again, I think the flaws of the film reflect the uh, very frantic circumstances in which it was made, particularly the writing phase. Um, the first draft that Fairstein turned in was much different, uh, you know, a different female lead, different uh, villain, um, you know, and then they brought in a bunch of other writers, but then they said, Bruce, we need you come on back. And then he's like trying to like get it done. And he's like writing scenes like the night before they were filmed in some cases is my understanding. So I, you know, I think under the circumstances, it's pretty decent, but the circumstances weren't the best. And um, I don't know, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, for me, um, it's like all, all the Brosnan films. It, it doesn't really deliver. Um, I I want to like it more than I actually do, and you know, there there are some scenes that I think could be fantastic if if they'd been handled differently, and uh, it, they just you know like the like the car thing in in Brent Cross. It just um, it, for me, it's just underwhelming and, and the climax is, is underwhelming and uh, I, I, I also think that uh, uh, Paris uh, her, her her role was so small you know and, and that you know that, that that's very often the case in the Bond films but I, I think because she was supposed to be such an important um, uh, character in 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 Bond's past, that they should have made much, much more of that, and she should have been in it for longer before getting rid of her. And you know, uh, probably, probably they they did have to get rid of her, even though it's a cliche. Um, but uh, you know, I, I don't know. So I, I'm kind of underwhelmed overall. I'm going to be more positive, I I think. I agree with you on the Paris front, I think. And I admire the Brosnan films. I've said this before. I like it that they do try to shake up something of the formula. Goldeneye has him go up against a former double O. This has him meet a Bond woman from the past. And then uh, World Is Not Enough has the main villain be one of the Bond women. So that's, I think, all those things in concept are really good. This is probably the weakest of those three. Um, and I think it would have helped had they maybe recast the Paris Carver role. Maybe if Isabella Skorupko or Kerry Lowell or Marion Diabo had come back or something, I think that would have been something quite interesting and special. Uh, that being said, I don't dislike what we have. Uh, Tomorrow Never Dies is one of my go-to comfort food bonds. So along with Octopussy, if I'm ill at home and I need some cheering up, this is one of my sort of go-to. I can just put it on and enjoy it. Um, I think the action sequences and the music are a large part of that. It is just very kinetic and you know sensory stimulation. Um, and Brosnan looks really good. I'm 
I'm, I'm, I'm very positive on this one. It's uh, I don't love it as much as Goldeneye and The World Is Not Enough, which I think are uh, my preferred Brosnan entries, but I probably end up watching it more than them. Um, and Michelle Yeoh is fantastic as well. Uh, it's just a shame that they had to shoe in the whole romance, romantic aspect of their relationship. Mm. Well, for me, <laughs> I think it's interesting because like some of my favorite Bond films, we're finally getting to them. And so sort of I've sat through some of my middle of the pack and there are a couple that I don't like. Everyone knows I don't like Spectre. So, I mean, that's going to be like, we're going to have to take shots before that film <laughs> in order to get through it. But I love Tomorrow Never Dies. For me, there's a lot of um, love for Michelle Yeoh. I love the soundtrack. I find the action to be invigorating. Yes, there's some geographical issues with the boat. So, I mean, I, I definitely acknowledge that and there's problems. But at the end of the day, I am like in such a good mood. I've enjoyed every moment of this. And even though I critique stuff, I can still sit here and enjoy other aspects. So, I mean, this was definitely a blast for me. I'm looking forward to some of my other comfort food Bond films, which I think that's a really great way of, of, of putting it, you know, what we're attracted to, what we're connected with and how it makes us feel. So I've got some good feelings coming forward in the, in the upcoming weeks, but overall, I love this film and I'm very happy we had the opportunity to do it. I'm in such a good mood right now. So I, I hope all of you are, but like, I'm still super excited. So, yeah. Well, I'll, can I just say one thing quick about the music? So there was a concerted effort to try to bring John Barry back one last time. Didn't work out. Opened the door for David Arnold. I thought he did a pretty good job, a very good job under less than, um, great circumstances yeah you know, he may have had storyboards to work with but i mean it's that's nothing like having an actual film to score having to do it in segments right. um, um but, i'm gonna go out, i'm gonna go out on a ledge and get pushed off by people by saying i'm glad john barry didn't do this film and david arnold was brought into the series yep nope i'm, I'm on that ledge I'm with okay. you i I, yeah. I don't know how john barry would have scored a 20 minute machine gun fight personally <laughs> <laughs> Um, or the car chase and give it the same energy that David Arnold did. I just, like we've talked about with Skyfall and Specs, like was Thomas Newman a good choice for a Bond movie when that's not the kind of film he scores? I don't think Tomorrow Never Dies being an action epic is the kind of movie that John Barry scores. Mm. Yeah, I would, I would come in and say that um, because Brosnan's Bond is sort of a bit pastiche of Connery and more, um, Arnold's kind of style is also a little bit pastiche and I don't mean that in a negative way at all I think it's kind of just like it, it, it's redolent of those uh, the, that particular, those eras in the same way that, that um, Brosnan is redolent I agree I agree he hit the right spot for these films but he really came into his own I, I, I think with Casino Royale yeah. yeah, yeah, I'd say that's I'd say that that's that's also true. But I think in terms of the perfect kind of person to score um, the Brosnan era, uh, I really think Arnold was right for it. Um, mm. And I and I think Barry would have, you know, it's like bringing Shirley Bassey back or something like that. It's it's a different era. Um, so that's my feeling on it. So we've talked before about like, is is a Bond film that 
miscues good ideas a worse sin than a bond film that does bad ideas well is that oh god and i think tomorrow never dies an example of missed opportunity like the world is not mm. enough is because of the stupid schedule that mgm forced them to do mm. you know um i pulled up a daily mail report from our archives from 97 <laughs> um when the, one of the quotes from the crew members was all the happiness and teamwork, which was the hallmark of the Bond films, has disappeared completely. Yeah. And there was reports of crew members threatening to quit. Spotters mm-hmm. for Fierstein weren't on speaking terms. They put Fierstein up in a hotel room to write the scenes the night before. Um, uh, this was on location um, in Bangkok. Um, the sets had already been built. <laughs> Half the film had already been in the can. So, I mean... Considering the situation that they were put in, I think they did remarkably well mm-hmm. with the end product. Yeah. It, it yeah, sounds fair, pretty fair. much like what was happening in 2019, though. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, and the irony, of course, is they had plenty of time. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, by, just by comparison, so like with GoldenEye, they started filming in, I think, January of uh, 1995 in time for a November... Uh, 1995 release in the case of um, Tomorrow Never Dies they didn't the first unit didn't start filming until April and time for a Christmas release and it was that was just yes they did it's something tight, it's a tight schedule yeah. very nuts. tight yeah and it's um, so I can understand the temptation to really dump on the on this movie in some degree. I tend to give it a pass to a degree at least, knowing what was going on in real life yeah. and um, and and put yourself in Bruce Fairstein's shoes. Like you, you come in, no thanks. You you were one of the heroes <laughs> for Goldeneye. You you were you did the last uh, draft that made a lot of people happy. So okay, Bruce. Here you go. And so we do things and so like, well, this is a bunch of crap. So we're gonna bring in by five or six other people to like you know, do your, you know, work over your work. And then at the last minute, oh Bruce, come back, please. Now, like you're a professional writer, you generally don't say no to a paycheck, but still it like Well, it's not just so much a paycheck, but it's like you get your name on the film. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I mean, that's that's huge because the other writers didn't. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and um, again, let me tell a really quick anecdote about that 95 uh, James Bond convention in New York, because like, I'm part of it. And like I'm asking uh, Michael G. Wilson about uh, Donald Westlake saying he's going to write the next Bond movie. And like F- Fairstein's standing next to Wilson and he turns to Wilson, says he is. And that wasn't my intent. But like Donald Westlake was like giving speeches saying, I'm going to write the next James Bond film film in like public appearances so you know the internet wasn't quite in gear then so like you that news didn't spread as quickly but uh you <laughs> yeah know, I, still. I would have, i'd have liked to have been a fly on the wall for that one bill that would have been a a, a good spit my champagne moment <laughs> especially, <laughs> after, especially after that q a session michael what was that guy talking about Right. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been great to have had all the cameras that uh, Bond put uh, down in the arms bazaar. <laughs> Can um, I just uh, – oh, sorry, James, you were going to say I was going to say the big winner for me out of the whole tortured production was Martin Campbell, who turned it down. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah. Because, I mean, what a, a hellish... Pro- and he wouldn't have come back to do Casino Royale had they put him through this on Tomorrow Never Dies. Probably not. So, yeah. you know, I'd, like I'd one of those many that. situations where missing something led to something good. This is one of those yeah. cases where... Yeah. And, and just uh, to go back to Calvin, when you were giving your... Uh, your your thoughts about the film, and you, you were saying that the the Brosnan era, um, you know, it, it brought in new ideas, and uh, I, I I agree with that completely. And I I think that is part of my problem with the Brosnan films, though, because they they brought in the mm. ideas, and I, I don't feel that they did deliver uh, all the time. And so so mm-hmm. it, it, yeah, very often it, it's um, I, I think my it's what I was saying at one point that uh, I think it was in the in the um, pre-title sequence that uh, it, it, I I just wanted to like it much more than I did, and I think it's because of that because the um, they 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 had the ideas but they just didn't really deliver them for me mm. at least. Yeah, and and I think that's a fair thing to say. Like I I don't think that. Uh, you know, Bond and Paris Carver in this film is explored or, uh, I mean, you could have a whole film really with, with, um, you know, a, a, a former flame coming back and being a part of the whole film. Uh, You could certainly handle that a lot better. Um, I guess I give it marks for attempting something (laughs) for, uh, you know, uh, stretching beyond its reach, even if it didn't, um, yeah, fully achieve. I wrote a short story, Calvin. Oh, God, my dogs. I wrote a short story, Calvin, which was basically... <laughs> Your dog um, wrote it. The, tell the truth. The, 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 <laughs> no, you didn't. You did not write that short story. I wrote that. Um, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was the night that, uh, that Bond leaves Paris. Um, so it was a mission based, uh, based in Zurich. Um, and it kind of it kind oh, of cool. delved into their their relationship, and then then how he kind of went. I'll be right back, and then disappeared, and why mm. he disappeared. But um, Bond left Paris well, in Zurich. Uh, this is geolog- <laughs> geographically, geographically, something. So yeah, so that was uh, that was my um, that was my short story that I did, which will never see the light of day. Mm-hmm. Um, what I was going to bring up was that. This is the we've we've got six Bond actors, right? Uh, and we're down three of them. Yeah, wow. I, I was going to mention last week we're beyond halfway. Mm. Yeah, last week. Goodness. So we're we're halfway through the we're halfway through the actors and halfway through the series. So uh, right. can I can I can exciting. I throw something out there that will elevate tomorrow never dies? Mm. Yes. Mm. Compare it to actors' second movies. Ah. Mm. where they're they're quickly wheeled in to do a follow-up pretty swiftly Mm. obviously i think from russia with love will probably win that list Mm -hmm. but um Mm. otherwise golden gun license to kill quantum of solace i'm a fan i'm a fan of i'm a fan of two of those plus um plus from russia with love so it doesn't work for me yeah I prefer Tomorrow Never Dies and License to Kill to From Russia with Love, actually, I think. Yeah. And The Man with the Golden Gun. And <laughs> <laughs> basically Bill, anything. are you okay? Bill, are you okay? Are you okay, Bill? Me? Who are you, Ethan? 
It's an interesting like- concept. I am. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> no, seriously, like, I have to comment about Golden Gun because I don't want to offend David. But, um, <laughs> great, great, great. We'll have a whole two hours coming up for that. And I, <laughs> and Daniel Craig in of- interviews in in 2008 said doing a second Bond film is like a, a, a band that has a smash hit debut album and it's the second difficult album. Hmm. Yeah. You know, so I think Bonds have a difficult second Bond sometimes. And a sophomore jinx, as we call it in the U- U.S. Right, right. And feel free to disagree with that idea. I'm just passing it on. Um, mm. Anyway, I mean, it's not like this is, well, it's not not like this is a bad movie, but it's there's some weaknesses, definitely. And uh, again, I go back to the frantic production schedule because, you know, it's like if they had like another three months to get it out, it you might have been able to smooth out, smooth the rough edges, but... Um, but they didn't. So, are we going to go for picks? Go for picks. Well, I was just going to. I was just going to end this. <laughs> I think Tomorrow Never Dies definitely falls into that category of weak third acts because they didn't have a strong script when they started filming movies. Yeah, of which there are a few in the series. Uh, look, um, James, you're absolutely right in terms of like bad third acts. This Inspector kind of like really kind of jump out for quantum. me, and that. A little bit, and, yeah, mm-hmm. and quantum, but but again, it, that they come day. down to and die another day. Oh yeah, well again, all of those films rewritten third act, rewritten, rewritten in the third act, and. <laughs> 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 oh, well, that's so funny. <laughs> Let me take it a step further. In the third act of this movie, I I don't want to say they waste Waylon. That that would be way too harsh. But she drops out once she goes down that chain. You know, drops her off. Oh, she's out of the picture until like Bond then comes down and gives her the breath of life and all that stuff. And they literally could have killed her character, and it would have made no difference to the film at that yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah, because oh, if they killed her off, then like when the British ship says Commander Bond, he would say, "Hey, pick me up." Um, yeah, that's <laughs> and we'd have more or less the same ending. Was she? She did go to the engine room to to do something. Oh, what did she do in there? Uh, oh yeah, I mean she doesn't disappear entirely, but and one, you know, but there are stretches in the last act where she's kind of like not there for as much, you know, as mm. which is odd given how how capable a character she is. So mm. Mm. in the, in the know. game, she gets captured, thrown in a cell. You have to rescue her. And then she spends the climax waiting on the boat for you to finish killing Elliot Carver. Sorry. That was audible. So half an hour ago, Lisa, you're ready to look up PlayStation one to never dies. And now you're like, yeah. well, I might not finish yeah. it. The- I might just play like the part that I like and be like, rock on. And then just be like, yeah, Bond's got this. So you don't need me. (laughs) I think, I think, uh, I think think Lisa was absolutely right about, um, there are a number of films where suddenly women are kind of just relegated to either being, you know, lifted out into space on a balloon or tied to chains and thrown into the water Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. it might be where they're just kind of extracted from the action. Well, I mean, shy of being shy of being tied to the railroad track, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and 
I think it's as you know, it's an egregious thing that happens in not just Bond movies, but in a, in a lot of uh, action films, uh, because somehow the the, the inference is that uh, you know only the man can kind of do the action. Um, but I agreed to Lisa's point earlier on, where they just she's you know you were saying that you, she could have easily have done something else, uh, you know, uh, co- coinciding with Bond's action. Um, to, to kind of save the day. And I think that that would have been much more enjoyable experience for, for the viewers. Um, mm. and, and, you know, if Calvin's point is that they're going to try and do something different every time, you know, with, with Brosnan's era, why then didn't they kind of, uh, cut this whole kind of St. George and the dragon damsel in distress thing out because that would have mm. been more interesting too. Yeah. And you're right. Yeah. I mean, this isn't it, this is not just a James Bond thing. This is an action genre thing, and it takes thinking outside of the box that you have just created for yourself. Like just because there are these tropes or these conventions, it doesn't mean that we can't move past them and there's ways of writing women in film where it doesn't take away from the man and his actions. There's a way for her to be fulfilled and competent and capable as well as him. And I think that for me is my challenge to anybody who is in the process Mm. of crafting these stories is to just push beyond the cliche because it matters to a lot of us who watch it. You know, my students get to the end of this film and they they all groan about it. They're like, why does she have to be with him? I mean, Mm. that is the overarching consensus of of my students. They're like, it's overplayed, it's overdone. Can't we move beyond it? And that's my big question to people who make you know cultural products why can't we move beyond this why does there always have to be a love and romance why does there always have to be heterosexual romance at the end of a film to validate a star and typically in action films sex and sexuality it tends to support or bolster heroic masculinity but oftentimes sex and sexuality takes away from women in action films it takes away from their capabilities and competency it's not equal terms and it's not it doesn't have the same impact so I just sort of challenge people to think about how sex and sexuality works because in this film it took away from to me the strongest female character that we've had in a Bond film and I don't think it was necessary to do that you don't have to throw her in the water and let her potentially drown in order to make Bond look good she could be blowing something up dealing with a control panel Bond has his moment and the two of them jump off at the end easy just an easy little tweak that doesn't take away from her it allows bond to have his moment both of them are invested in the action and both of them are co-heroes working for their governments and if we really want to re-envision in this film this chinese um british relationship right Uh, sort of reframing it after 1997 it has to still be on equal terms it can't be that you know the woman who's representing china is off to the side and we still just need britain to come in represented by bond maybe it requires a more even footing and a more uh, equitable partnership so yeah Hmm. there's a lot in there when you were talking lisa about like um weakening basically the weakness of the character towards the end of the film it's especially egregious considering they just came off Goldeneye mm-hmm. when Natalia mm. has agency and importance in the end of that film. Yep. Mm. So they actually take a step back, which yeah. is counter to the idea of having a central, strong female character in this film. It's like, what were they thinking? Yeah, Natalia, Natalia does so much more in, in the last act 
of Goldeneye than, than really Waylin does, and she's she's a more capable and trained agent. Mm-hmm. So it's it does seem a bit strange. I would um, I would like to argue that um, there'll be a new generation of uh, screenwriters coming forward. Um, I think that there is a, a paradigm shift that will happen. Um, there will be obviously people f- influenced by the films that they've seen growing up, and um, there'll be a you, you know and, and screenwriting. If you if you ever if you've ever engaged in it, you know there are books out there that tell you how to kind of write screenplays in a very kind of formulaic way. I think what will happen though is is there'll be a demand for different demand for Ben. I'd, I'd say those right those writers have always been out there. Mm-hmm. The difference mm-hmm. being that the studio system yes. that's been in place for dec- for a hundred years has been the thing that has filtered those scripts out, mm-hmm. and that's why you have books yeah. showing you a template yeah. to write it. The difference now is we have disruption in the industry. We have Netflix, Amazon, Apple, or commissioning um, yep. scripts by Gen X producers, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. and millennial producers. So. I'd argue those those writers have always been out there. They just haven't had the access to create their yeah. films. Yeah, no, that's 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 fair. I guess what will happen now, though, is hopefully we will start to see more and more of these these kind of scripts getting greenlit or series getting commissioned that you, you know do feature a more diverse cast and are more representative. And I um, think that, and, and uh, are not formulaic. I- and are not formulaic, and hopefully that will be. And surprising us because it's one of the things that I found um, having, you know, probably read fifty screenwriting books is that whenever you go in to watch a movie, you know what's going to happen, um, mm. and therefore, you know, it takes all the kind of. It's been very rare that a film has kind of made me go, "Oh, I didn't see that coming," um, <laughs> and it's mm. and it's such a it's such a pleasant surprise when you know when you are. There's the, they're the ones you remember. We'll just start to see more and more of these these uh, types of uh, productions getting made, whether it be uh, series or films, that will be more inventive and, and, and more uh, you know more surprising and engaging because of it. Mm. And I, I really hope so. I really hope that that's going to filter its way through to, and and just talking very quickly and obviously edit this out, James, if you need to. But like one of the things that. Um, you know, Barbara always said, or even even Cubby always said, was that you know that you've got a formula, don't fuck it up. Um, you know, all you have to do is follow the Bond formula, and you've got a successful film. I I would argue that you know you do need to to shake it up a little bit, and I think that you yeah. know Calvin's right; I, they, did, they they have done that a little bit. I I, th- I think <sighs> extrapolating out that often kind of like paraphrase quote from Cubby Broccoli about here's the formula, don't fuck it up. I don't think it just meant girls, gadgets, guns, three acts. I think it also meant the people yeah, and the studio and, and all the other machinery around it is like, it was the bond family. Don't mm-hmm. fuck it up. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, I think when the Daniel Craig era is in the rear view mirror, mm-hmm. I, I think that's been eroded a little bit. I, I, I completely agree. I think um, I, I think maybe maybe that quote was taken taken too much to heart, and you know rather than focusing on the family, you know or or, or the um, or the things that made the, the Bond series so great, 
Um, well, I mean, it, I, I would throw in there like hiring auteur directors and giving them too much creative control. Yes, yeah, absolutely. In that, yeah. Mm. And and I think that that's a problem is that giving them giving them creative control, but also saying you have to stick rigidly to this guns, gadgets, and girls formula because um, that seems to be what you know what what hallmarks a lot of the Craig movies. And I think um, you know what you you didn't need to have certain things like you didn't need to have that scene with Monica Bellucci. You didn't need to have the Berenice Molo shower scene. You know, those are things that should have been you excited. Don't, you don't need to have an Aston Martin in every Bond film. Oh, well, two Aston. Oh, three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, just a reminder. Last year we did a uh, we did an episode about how could you modernize Fleming's most problematic novel, Live and yeah. Die, and modernize it to the twenty first century. And I think you know, and and it can be done. We t- discussed ideas. No, this is not the time to go into those ideas, but we've discussed a number of ideas. It, you could do it. It's just, but it would take, it take, it takes some effort and you can stay true to Fleming in a sort of spiritual sense, but not, if you said in the modern day, you can't necessarily do it in the literal sense. So anyway, food for thought. So nominations for next yeah. time. Who wants to shoot first? Greta. I was going to say, okay, you know what? And I was going to change the order of them in the edit then, but okay, we would. I'm not going to pull a Lucas on you. <laughs> Just trying to remember what we've still got left in the pot. You've got about a 45% shot at getting it right. <laughs> um, um, we've got gonna... no Brosnans. Yeah. We've got no Daltons. Mm. No Lazenbees. No, we have a surprising no amount of moors left. Okay, I'm going to go for... If I, I can go first. I am going to go for The Spy Who Loved Me. Yep. Oh, Calvin! Oh, I'm sorry. The, uh, <laughs> actually, I was going to go for that too. So, but, yeah, oh, Calvin, Everybody you, puts you it first, the same. There you go. <laughs> the, 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 the battle on the boat, doubleheader. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to pick that based on the fact that, yeah, like, like I said, you know, the set reminded me slightly of it, and I think it's... You know, be interesting to kind of see them side by side and just be like, why one is far superior to the other. But, um, but I'll probably be voting for that, Calvin. Put it that way. But you're going to nominate? I'm going to nominate Thunderball. Oh, all right. You just want to lose, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) I I almost spit my drink. (laughs) All right. I'll, I'll go. Ben's um, my friend. As, as, as I recall the rules, once we've nominated one, we can't nominate it again. Oh, no, no, no. We can't. We threw that out. Did we? Yeah. Yeah. These, well, you know what? We had a view to kill three weeks in a row. So it's fine. Say a view to a kill, Bill. Well, kill that's Bill. tempting, but I'm going to go with Casino Royale. We haven't done mm. it yet. Yeah, I think this might be the first time that that's been nominated. After Lisa said uh, um, she needs bathroom breaks. Uh, <laughs> I'll mute my microphone. The, it's fine. I think we could the, bring in an intermission. Hour mark, we'll have an intermission, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, David, you've got the opportunity here to split the vote on an actor because yeah. we've got three Ooh. films, three actors left. So are you going to take from Connery Moore or Craig? Oh, this is difficult, yeah. 
Okay. I... I'm going to write down what I think you're going to say, and then we'll see what you say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to vote for... Um... You've made it more complicated now that you're trying to uh, double guess me, so I'm going to go for A View to a Kill. Oh, yes. I, had, I had you down for Spectre. <laughs> All right. Oh, you've split. You've split my vote. You've split uh, the Roger vote now. Yeah, I, I might have to. I might have to vote for. Uh, I might have to vote for a view to a kill. Jesus. Oh God. <laughs> I, I don't well, the good news is there's another five hundred to one thousand people that vote Ben. So <laughs> just 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 like being in California, your vote doesn't really count. Oh, <laughs> oh man. Wow. It's going to be Casino. I don't know why I'm guessing. I, I've, I don't think I've ever gotten a guess right, but I would put money on Casino yeah, out I of these. Yeah. Right, well, um, I'll buy some supplies for next week. Um, <laughs> a catheter. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast uh, brought to you by catheters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a, a catheter and a bottle of quinoa if you can still get a bottle. <laughs> Which is not the um, we uh, on a previous episode we talked about the benefits of Snapple bottles, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yes. <laughs> But maybe we'll do an intermission. Thanks very much, everybody. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Take care, everybody. Darling, I'm killed. Your life, every night.